In the not too distant future 2016 AD Sour. This is Captain Jack Hollis. You are tuned into Captain Jack's Arm Bar Emporium on the Steel Cage Network. And if you're listening to this, you know what time it is. We are here to cover the back half, the home stretch, if you will, baby, of The Last Dance, the huge ESPN Netflix co production covering the final season of the Chicago Bulls Dynasty. If you are listening to this episode ahead of last week's, Please stop the recording, go back to episode 106, fire it up, and listen to that one. We cover episodes 1 through 5. So much stuff happens. Uh, The rise of Air Jordan, the Nike revolution, Phil Jackson taking over the Bulls, the wars with the bad boys, Scottie Pippen coming to Chicago, Dennis Rodman coming to Chicago, uh, and two-thirds of the first three-peat. Do yourself a favor, check it out, then come back and join us. Once you do, and you're here now, first of all, welcome back. We appreciate you, especially during these times. Uh, Secondly, we are lucky enough to have joining us again to finish this out from PW Insider, back from his bender, Mike Epsonhart. Man, I had to go. I had to pull you out. I told him you weren't coming back if you went to Vegas. I told him. You didn't listen to me. No, they should have. <laughs> 48 hours turned into like four days. You know, here we are at the end of the week. Series is over. Where are you? I got to hop in, mask and all, into a car. I had to come out and get you out of a place that was closed to begin with. I don't know how you pulled that off. I work my magic. I, I was six feet away from Carmen Electra, responsibly assistant. So there was no reason to pull me out of that room. I was doing everything the way I was supposed to. Dare I say the most impressive, the most impressive social distancing possible in the history of human events. To stand six feet away from Carmen Electra, even today. Might I say, might I say, still looking gorgeous. What's the closest she would probably let me? (laughs) I mean, 
that's not for me to say. That's not for me to say. But, uh, man, uh, we didn't mention it in the first episode, but how amazing was it that she was one of the many, many people that got interviewed for this thing? Yeah, they, they found everybody, pretty much. I was really hoping for, like, a, like a, a drop from Bischoff or Hogan, or like, but... Alas, I don't think ESPN wanted the holster on their documentary. Where we will get there. Oh, man, I cannot wait for us to get there. Holy crap. Um, so, yeah, let's jump right in. Where we left off, episode 6, 1993 NBA Finals. And, you know, there they are, 15-4 postseason run. They're going to a meeting with the Suns and uh, league MVP Charles Barkley, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley, Thunder Dan Marley, uh, and Coach Paul Westfall. And, you know, we're, we're right in the thick of it. Michael is 29 years old, uh, undisputably at this point the most famous man on the planet, two straight titles in, working on three. You know, we get the cl- the clip of uh, Westfall screaming, Michael is not beating us, double-team him, make someone else beat us. And it's just, we are dropped into the madness of Jordan in his prime. Yeah, this was the absolute height of my hatred for Michael Jordan. Because the Knicks this year took a 2-0 series lead over the Bulls. Won two games at Madison Square Garden. John Starks threw a dunk on Jordan's head. Oh, my God. It looked like they had run out of gas, and it was finally going to be our time. It was finally going to be our time. And then the Bulls reeled off four straight, including the controversial end to Game 5 at Madison Square Garden, where Charles Smith got mugged by three Bulls underneath the rim, and the referees just kind of turned their backs and went, we don't see him getting... Slapped everywhere in his body except for the ball. Little blocks. Game over. But listen, the, the Bulls would have ended up winning that series anyway. Even if Charles Smith was allowed to go over the free throw line, he probably misses both free throws, to be honest. But still, he should have gotten the chance. This was the absolute. I was watching this game with my friend Adam, who is four years older than me. So he was in high school, I was in junior high. And we were in his house. And after Charles Smith blew 87 straight layups, and he mugged, but after he blew 87 straight layups, <laughs> he just turned around and kicked a hole in his wall. And I was like, oh, wow. I've never been that angry at the end of a sporting event in my life. I'm just going to go home now. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I am going to slowly back away. I'm going to leave, and we're never going to discuss this game again. <laughs> See, my lasting image from that, that was the, was that the season? Was was that the year that uh, Scotty had the uh, the dunk and he walked over Ewing? Yes. Oh, man. That's my lasting image from that series. Just absolute, one of the all-time definitions of being posterized. He just fucking destroyed that man. And it was... It, it, it just it stuck with me forever, so I popped all over again, seeing it a couple of times through here. And 
Uh, off they went, and Barkley was otherworldly this year. I think that's stuff that people don't remember. I think everybody, you know, thinks of him in 2020 with the the comically bad golf swing, you know, cutting it up on uh, TNT's NBA coverage and, you know, verbal jousting with Shaq and Kenny Smith and all this stuff like that. People forget how absolutely great Charles Barkley was. And 93 was his best year. That was the I'm not your role model, Barkley versus Godzilla Nike campaign, all this other stuff. He was having a moment, too. Yeah, he was a monster. I mean, and he was the same height as Michael. This is the crazy thing. Like, he was 6'6", but he was a power forward. Yep. Because he was so explosive and so strong and, like, out-rebounded guys four or five inches bigger than him. And bullied guys that were bigger than him down low. So he didn't have, like, the athletic kind of grace of Michael Jordan. He was brute force and power. And it didn't matter that he was the smallest guy at that position. He was the toughest guy at that position. And he started developing a consistent mid-range shot. He was always a terrible three-point shooter. But that year, I think he was a little bit better than he'd ever been. And he was just a monster that year. And, like, he thought to himself, you know, Michael might be the best player ever, but I'm the best player this year. Like, Charles had no doubt that the Suns were going to win the NBA championship. Yeah, he he had I hated the Suns, too. (laughs) He had the supreme belief, and they had a a very uh, all-time underrated team. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that the media really starts digging into Michael here. Uh, the Jordan Rules, which is one of the great NBA books, comes out, and it chronicles, you know, for the first time, it really, like, pulls back the curtain and shows the leadership style of Michael. Uh, you know, the famous Will Purdue fist fight is a centerpiece of that book. Uh, we get stories about his love of high-stakes gambling on golf and card games, and then it kind of culminates with the trip he took to Atlantic City via limousine after a uh, after a game in the Knicks series, pretty late in that series. He and his father go to Atlantic City and on the night before a game, and then they come back. You know, that's a, one of the last times that James Jordan ultimately is featured on camera, defending Michael and defending his choices. So it's and he's he had that famous quote, damn, how much is enough? And yeah, yeah, it was really the beginning of the tear down your hero athletes culture that developed. And not saying that's a bad thing to expose people doing terrible things, but really up until the Jordan rules, if you think about decades and decades of star athletes behaving badly and it never getting out anywhere, it's because in that era, Really, all of the beat writers were local guys. They wanted access to the team. They palled around with the team. They were chummy with the team. They built relationships with the players. And they didn't want to do things to jeopardize that. So you didn't get a lot of – unless something really unavoidable happened in public, you didn't really get a lot of reporting about people doing bad things. Like in New York, the Mets, Daryl and – Doc were getting busted for for drugs. That's the only reason that stuff was ever talked about. But that 86 team 
was like party central. Like they were getting drunk in in the uh, locker room and stuff. Like they were drinking during games. Reporters saw it. They knew. They didn't report it because there was this whole thing. It's like, well, these people are heroes. You know, the kids look up to them. So let's not to know. There's athletes blowing off steam. Nobody needs to know about these things. So this kind of was the first major thing I could remember where, a, you know, something that wasn't truly public. Like the Pete Rose stuff all came out because baseball was doing a major investigation on him. That some and take an athlete at the height of his powers that's super popular and say, you know what? I've chronicled all these things. I've talked to these sources. I'm going to make my money off of painting Michael Jordan as a tyrant. And then once that book happened, it kind of started to look at everything this guy was doing. And obviously at that age, I wasn't reading the book, but there was a lot of like news. Like I read the newspapers and stuff. I remember reading the sports sections, and the New York media was really hitting on all this stuff. Like, this guy's a piece of garbage. He, he, he shouldn't be a hero. Patrick Ewing is a good person. He doesn't do these things. You know, you're getting, like, that kind of spin on it from a lot of the uh, columnists. So, again, as a young kid, like, I'm like, oh, this guy is a piece of crap. What do you know? So, you know, yeah. I kind of bought into that whole thing hook, line, and sinker. And, like, as an adult looking back, he he surrounded himself with some bad people. Let's, you know, not going to excuse that. He, he made some bad decisions on who he let into his life, like playing golf and gambling with gangsters and stuff like that, you know, and criminals and, and money launderers. But really, if you think about it, he was a guy hyper-driven that wanted to push his teammates to the edge in practice so that the games were easier than practice. And he blew up steam by gambling on golf and cards. And it became this insanity, and, and it's like almost ridiculous to an extent uh, how big that became. Where if you talk to anyone in the NBA, all those stars were doing the same thing. Maybe not to that extent, because Michael was hyper-competitive and he wanted to win at everything. Uh, you know, Charles Barkley told a story about playing cards with him. And he and Michael didn't just want to – even at cards, Michael didn't just want to beat you. He wanted to step on your neck. He wanted to take everything from you. Everything that you were willing to lose that night, Michael wanted to take from you. That He, he was just hyper-competitive. But, like, if you really think about, like, the media backlash against – him, it was kind of over the top ridiculous. Yeah, it it really was, and it, it kind of put this into relief. And the fact that it was one of the Bulls beat writers that was the one that wrote the Jordan rules, you know, Michael puts up a two week media blackout and only ends it by talking to you know one of his closest friends inside of the NBA, and that's Ahmad Rashad from Inside Stuff. And NBC Sports. And, yeah. It's, yeah, it's the only dude he'll talk to. Because he trusted at that point. Because he knew Ahmad. One, even if Michael was doing real bad stuff, he knew Ahmad was going to softball the interview. So it was a safe place. But, again, I don't think, like, he was doing – and it's funny. Like, I don't think in 2020 if they were like, oh, if LeBron, if LeBron James, you know, was playing cards with the rest of the Lakers – or if LeBron James was gambling on golf with um, Dwayne Wade, 
and a couple other guys that we didn't know who were just kind of shady dudes hanging around. It would get like two days on ESPN where all the talking – like Stephen A. Smith would be like, who cares? And Max <laughs> Kellerman would be like, well, you know, at the bottom line is, oh, does it affect the game? And then it would be gone. But, like, in 1993, it was this pearl-clutching moment of, this man that is supposed to be a superhero does things that other humans do. And it's all the perspective thing. The guy is a multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire. So when they just put out, like, oh, he has $2.1 million in in gambling debts, like, it's mind-blowing to the general public, but it's $21 to him. For real. For real. The guy went on to own the Charlotte Hornets. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's ridiculous you know it's it is perspective and also keep in mind the place and time this was this was a year before the oj simpson chase almost to the day i hate oj simpson too <laughs> but i I'm, i use that as a frame of reference because that's the real delineation sure. point as far as like sports heroes getting softballed and like it's never the same after that Oh, yeah, O.J. brings it to a whole nother level. But again, O.J. was doing terrible shit that people knew about for years and years, and nobody said a word about it. Not a thing. Police reports were being filed. There were pictures of, of Nicole beaten. The media, if, in 2020, that would have been in every paper. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was like, well, you know, it's a personal thing. It has nothing to do with him playing football, so we're just going to leave that alone. But I'll tell you why I hate O.J., aside from the... You know, obvious. obvious. The White Ford Bronco chase took place during the Knicks-Rockets NBA final game at Madison Square Garden. Sure did. So the Knicks are finally in the NBA finals, and it's the happiest Knicks moments of my life. And I'm watching that game, and they cut away to this chase, and they never went back to the game. They went back and like, oh, and the final score is the Knicks defeat the Rockets in game. I'm like, what? What? I missed the full game of the NBA goddamn finals for a slow chase where nothing happens. I hate you, OJ. Oh, man. Uh, sidebar, another amazing ESPN uh, production. Maybe my favorite 30 for 30. It's it's tough because there's a lot of great ones. Uh, June 17th, 1994. Go watch it. Uh, anywhere you can get your hands on it, whether that's Netflix or ESPN+. Plus. Uh, it covers all the stuff that happened that day. Yes, it was that NBA Finals game. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. being the fastest uh, person to ever hit 30 home runs in the history of Major League Baseball happened that day. Jack Nicklaus's final major. Um, just everything in, in sports happened all on that same day. I think of the World Cup in America for the first time was starting that day. It was insane. Like a one in a million convergence. Uh, but... Yeah, really, really cool 30 for 30 if you ever get a chance to watch that. And it covers that absolute madness. But, uh, yeah, coming back to 93, this was another volume in the proxy war between Jerry Krause and Michael Jordan. Because he fucking loved Dan Marley. And told anybody that would listen how much he did. So <laughs> Jordan's like, I'm going to take this man's life. I'm going to take his whole career. See, I feel like in that case, though, that was Jerry Krause knowing Michael. And the Phoenix Suns were a real threat. 
they were a real threat. That team, like you said, was stacked. And I think in that case, that may have been Jerry Krause going, I know I can push Michael's buttons and send him to that level if I just compliment Dan Marley. If I give effusive compliments to Dan Marley, Michael's going to go through the roof. And that makes Michael 100 times better. And the Knicks, that Knicks Bull series was physically taxing. Right? That was a physical, typical Knicks Bulls street fight. It wasn't as dirty as, as the Piston stuff would get, but they were very physical teams and very physical confrontations. So I think that was a little bit of Jerry Krause going, oh, I'm a little nervous after that Knicks series. Um, Michael's been going through all this stuff with the media and the gambling stuff, and that's coming. So if I just push Dan Marley in front of his face, he's going to go off. Do you, do you think it was one of those things where he saw what happened with Tony Kukoc and he's like, maybe I can use this in in my favor this time? Yeah, at that point he knew, and also he was getting abused by Mike. Like he knew that any he everyone knew, except for rookies that would come into the league. Everyone knew that any slight perceived or real was going to send Michael to that next level. Yeah, uh, who's who's that kid that played for the Bullets? Oh, I forgot his name. Oh my God, we'll we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there because I feel I think that's after the comeback. I yes, think that's right, right after the comeback. But uh, yeah, Game Three really sticks out. They win in triple overtime. Jordan scores fifty-five points in arguably one of the greatest single-game performances he ever ever had. Uh, John Paxson hits the series closer to win it in six games. LeBradford Smith. I'm sorry. It, was, it just popped into my head. It was yeah. LeBradford Smith from the Bullets. Yes. Oh, man. Um, we're going to sidebar on that in a second. Because uh, Paxson had an amazing quote after they show him making the shot that clinches the series. He said that the celebration on that one was relief rather than true joy. And that, you know, a lot had changed since the first title. And, you know... They they go to Ahmad Rashad again, who said that Jordan's ready, going to be wants to leave the league sooner than you think, and he stuck around. He stayed for the Olympics. He stayed to win the third title specifically because Magic Johnson and Larry Bird had never won three in a row, and those are the people he measured himself against. And he had nothing left to prove, and he wanted a new challenge. So, I also feel that. The Jordan rules coming out and the media really starting to pick on him. That's something he never had to go through before. Like, as far as the way he was presented and portrayed, he was another amazing sports hero that was given the royal treatment in all public places for news and media and newspapers and magazines. I feel like if there was a more even handed approach, to report, you know, if the Jordan rules didn't come out and there was a more even-handed approach to reporting on his transgressions as a human being, I don't know if Jordan retires. I think he was, you know, to, to his father's point, how much is enough? I think he was like, this is bullshit. I've proved everything I have to prove. I've made enough money. F all this stuff. I'm out of here. Yeah, I... I would I would be forced to agree. 
you know, it was probably just how much it felt like a cheap shot that made him do that. Um, the Before we get into the Bradford Smith, one more thing, and that is that the MVP of this episode, in my opinion, was Charles Barkley. Both the Charles Barkley of 2020 and especially the Charles Barkley of 1993. Just amazing. Charles Barkley, whenever he runs his mouth, generally is the MVP. There was a great moment during that final series where yes. the Bulls are one game away from clinching. And so the reports in Chicago are like, oh, okay, here's how to safely celebrate. You know, maybe you should board up your windows. Here's how to prepare. So this way, just in case things get out of control. And Barkley's like, they ain't celebrating tonight. And Barkley goes out and has one of his like shining games and basically carries the suns past the bulls in Chicago to force the series back to Phoenix for game six. And the post game press conference, he's like, all right, everyone, you can unboard your windows. Now bulls didn't win. Yeah. The, the specific quote is take that shit off your windows. You don't need it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, so good. And then we get the fast forward back to 98 Jordan talking about his retirement and, you know, saying, I want to leave two years before my skills say I can't play this game. I don't want to miss my time to go. A lot of players say they want to play until they can't play ever again. Patrick Ewing said one time that they would have to carry him off the court. No one's going to carry me off the court. I want to walk off the court. A lot of people say you're going to miss it. I'm not sure I'm going to miss it. I don't think I'm going to miss it. And it's funny because if we can fast forward to the end of the series, I think he betrays that comment with what he said about how it still haunts him, still haunts him, after everything he accomplished, that they didn't get a chance to go after number seven. Yeah, and I, uh, I definitely, I definitely want to get there. We'll, we'll get there at the end, because that, that's such a rich topic, and that was something I was not expecting, that I, that's, a meal in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But the LeBranford Smith story. So, Michael's playing the bullets, and this kid, LeBranford Smith, who was not much of a player, you know, obviously everyone in the NBA is talented, but amongst the NBA stars, not much of one. You know, uh, he has the game of his life, and he goes off on Jordan. Was it 34 or 37 points? Yeah, I, I think it was It was a damn good game like that. Yeah. So I think it was, yeah, it was 37. I think it was 37. And Michael had an off night. Still performed well, but like, you know, not, he was outshined by Bradford Smith. So Michael claims that when the game is over, this kid shakes his hand and goes, nice game, Mike, and that sets Jordan off. Jordan feels like he's been disrespected, that the kid is, is should know, know his place, that we're playing the Bullets again tomorrow in a home-and-home home series, so we're flying out there. I'm going to score more points in the first half than this kid scored all night because I'm going to show him nice game, Mike. And then the next night against the Bullets – absolutely waxes the kid, scores more points than the kid did all game in the first half of the game against the Bullets, and the Bulls win. Now, here's the thing. The game that Bradford Smith went off, the Bulls won that game too. So it wasn't like the Bullets beat them. The Bulls still won. 
And then, as it turns out, reporters went up to him years later and asked him, is that really true? And Mike kind of laughed and went, nope, I made it all up. Oh, my God. <laughs> Psychopath. Yeah, because he, want, he, he <laughs> felt like he needed to give himself an edge. I've heard different versions of the story. I've heard versions of the story where – because Bradford Smith kind of shut down Michael Jordan for sh- – you know, quote unquote, shut down Michael Jordan. That LeBradford made a comment that I'll stick Michael tomorrow night too. That was the thing that set off Jordan, and Jordan went out and smashed in the net. That, Michael Wilbon's told the story that way, where LeBradford Smith made a comment about I'm the guy that can stick Michael Jordan. So Michael went, Oh really? I'll outscore you in the first half more than you scored all last night. But for it to be, and that's kind of insane. But for it to just be nice game make and nice, well, how dare you? dare you like this, it's and that's what motivated him this thing he created in his mind about this kid being disrespectful is what he used to motivate him to destroy him the next night it's nuts it's bonkers yeah it's the the levels he would go and it's it perfectly summed up in the interview with connie chung in the wake of the all the gambling uh questions where he said I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. And Which was on full display when he was desperate to beat his own security team at uh, penny tossing. Oh, my God. When that one guy hit it on him and then hit him with the shrug. The shrug. Oh, that's one of the greatest moments we've ever never knew about. Legendary troll job by one of his own dudes. You gotta, You love to see it. Oh, man. And Michael's, and Michael's steaming. You could tell he's steaming. He's like, I only get three shots, and these guys get to throw as many coins as they want. <laughs> like, Michael is just steaming. It's like, yeah. you accepted the rules, Michael. <laughs> yeah, it's just... <sighs> yeah, he, he hated to lose at even something that small. You know, it's like you said about the cards. He would go play dollar blackjack up front with the low rollers on the team plane. And they'll be like, why do you bother? And he, he would look them dead in the eyes and he said, because I want to know that I have your money in my pocket. Yeah. Just stone uh. cold. Stone cold. But um, then we roll into episode seven and it shit gets heavy. You know, we've yeah. come off this unbelievable high of the first three peak and things are open ending. Michael's clearly burnt out. And then suddenly. We have the disappearance and what we find out to be the murder of his father, James Jordan. Yeah, this got out of control, too, back in the day, because it came on the heels of all the gambling stories. So people were trying to immediately tie it to Michael's behavior led to the like just really like sleazy stuff that like Michael without any proof or evidence it was just complete conjecture people were just trying to put dots together he's he's at the height of his powers we can't understand why he we retired it's got to be because of the shady stuff he was doing the nba said they exonerated him after an investigation they did nothing wrong to violate the rules but this doesn't make and now his father's these dots together and there was tons of stories about you know speculating that that James Jordan's murder had something to do with Michael Jordan's associates and the gambling, and it was revenge on Michael, and it got really out of. And again, it, it like crystallizes like why wouldn't this guy want to step away for a while? It just cheap shot after cheap shot, low blow after low blow, you know. And that, that's when like the, the weird uh, conspiracy theory that the NBA actually suspended him for a year and a half. I'm came so up. glad they addressed that. 
Because I always thought that that was some of the dumbest shit imaginable. There was nothing to gain by secretly suspending him. Like, for what? So, okay, you're too much of a coward to say you actually suspended him, but you're still taking your money, your biggest moneymaker out of the league for a year and a half? If you're that much of a coward that you're gonna not going to announce you're going to suspend him, you don't suspend him! Yep. yep. It makes no sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're just going to let him pretend he's retiring for a year and a half. It's like... It makes no sense. Oh, so he could save face? He's already getting steamrolled in the press. They're running all, They're running with all this speculation about all these things about his life. So, like, by by actually coming out... And, and that's the funny thing. Even if David Stern came out and made a statement, what is this? We did not suspend Michael Jordan. He retired of his own volition. He'd be playing in the league right now if he wanted to. People were like, yeah, whatever. You're protecting him. Why would David Stern want to protect someone... That was going to leave the league. Yep. Yep, and just it, the the media doing that to him, the sports media doing that to him was just so sleazy and disgusting, and it was it was the final nail. The the guy was exhausted. He had no motivation. He had, had climbed all of the possible mountains there were to climb, and so he decides at age thirty he's going to retire. He tells Phil Jackson, "I'm." I have no more challenges. I have no motivation. I'm ready to walk away. And Phil says, okay. And yeah, that's like, yeah. again, Phil, there's so many coaches because that's his, the meal ticket that would have been having conversation after conversation to talk him out of doing this. You got to stay. What are you doing? Da, da, da. Here's how much money's you know at stake. Bah, bah, bah. Championships, glory, legendary. You could go up and... Bah. Phil is just like, are you sure? I'm sure. Okay. Because <laughs> like, that's Phil. Like Phil would never try and force someone into doing something that they really didn't want, that was against their own best interests. Yep. Because, you know, Phil, Phil, like you said, was the prototype for the, the changing, the, the changing in the free spirit of the NBA. You know, it was, he, he was the guy. And he totally understood that, you know, if you're not happy, you're not happy. You got to go do something about it. So the news leaks out. Um, it would have been great if Phil looked him dead in the eye and went, you sure you don't just want to take a 48-hour vacation to Vegas? <laughs> Time traveler. <laughs> that fucking vacation. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. A giant event. I remember school had just, you know, grade school had just started back up in 1993. Um, I was eight at the time, and I vividly remember, you know, Michael Jordan deciding to retire and what a big topic it was at school. And just shockwaves everywhere. In, in 93, I was a freshman in high school. And when that news came, so at that point, like being in New York, we've all got into this. Michael Jordan is a garbage person, a horrible person, a cheater, a gambler. He hangs out with thieves, right? Thirteen, you know, at thirteen years old, fourteen years old, it's like, yeah, it, it, that's why his dad died. That piece of shit. He killed his own dad. That's what it is. So when he retires, like, good, get rid of this fucker, and the Knicks could win now. That was what the conversation in the halls of high school was i mean because let, let's face it to to a, a de one degree or another we're all shitheads in high school 
pretty much every single one of us. The lucky ones, you know, we, we grow out of that. We, we mature. And then, you know, there's some that never do. Um, but, yeah, uh, Michael says he takes solace in the fact that his dad had seen his last basketball game. And he finally publicly reveals what he had said to his dad and what he had said to Ahmad Rashad was he wanted to go play baseball. And off off he goes. And we end that episode by getting ready for him to have life after the NBA, seemingly. Yeah, Michael Jordan, Chicago White Sox, which is also owned by Jerry Reinsdorf. He owned the White Sox. And the Bulls. So, imagine you're Jerry Reinsdorf, and you've like, you've been handed you know three championships. You've had the best the best basketball player in the world. He tells you, "I'm stepping away," and then he calls you back and goes, "So how about signing me to play baseball?" <laughs> like motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fine. Here's I'm gonna here's, do it. Hopefully, because hopefully you'll come back to basketball one day. Here's the interesting thing. Is and here's something I didn't know, and I have to give credit to Reinsdorf. Uh, because he owned both organizations, there wasn't any sort of uh, free for all about Jordan breaking his contract or anything like that. He paid Jordan his basketball salary to play for the Whites uh, to play for the Double A team, and w- which was, you know, yeah. something I didn't expect. Yeah, and I think listen. Jerry Reinsdorf's a really smart businessman, and I think part of it was, if this dude ever decides to come back to the NBA, I'd rather keep him under contract. I don't want to have this messy divorce where he comes back and says, hey, Jerry, I demand you trade me to the Knicks. Yeah. Or you know, I'm I going love to Madison the Lakers. Square Garden. Yeah. The only team I'm, I love Madison Square Garden. It's my favorite arena. So unless you trade me to the Knicks, I'm just going to sit home. Interesting. And then Jordan and Jordan, if Jordan would leak, because you'd say, well, then Jerry would let him sit home. Imagine Jordan leaking to the press. Yeah, the uh, owner of the Bulls and I had a falling out. I don't want to play there anymore. He's robbing you of watching me play because he won't trade me. Ugh. What a nightmare that would have been. Because there was a rumor, and I, I was almost hoping it would show up in the documentary, but it was such, a, it was never been corroborated. Like kind of in dark circles, people have kind of whispered that it was true that after the Jazz, the second championship against the Jazz, where he retired, that if there wasn't a lockout, that he was talking, he was thinking about telling the Knicks to sign him to a one-year deal because he would team up with Patrick, get Patrick the championship, and shove it up Jerry Krause's ass. Oh. And then there was the lockout. And there was the lockout, and that eliminated any chance of him coming back the next year. Shit. Like, and I've heard that come up a few times, and no one's really said no. no said yes to it, so I was kind of hoping that would be put to bed once and for all. Because it, I tell you what, though, I, maybe I'm glad it didn't get addressed. Because if he would have been like, "Oh yeah, I would have gone to the next," I would have been like, "Ah!" <laughs> it might have struck you dead where you stand. No. Passed out and been like, I can't do this show. <laughs> I can't take this shit no more. Um, yeah, it's... Nah, that's garbage. I would have been like, oh, thank God. Yeah, right. Uh, 
the interesting thing is when they cover his time in baseball, um, the fact that they immediately stack the odds against him. You know, he hadn't played uh-huh. ba- baseball since high school. You know, to get dropped into double-A ball like that was kind of unheard of. Um, just, it was insane. Uh, for for more info on this time, another really good 30 for 30 I'd recommend that focuses on this time specifically is called Jordan Rides the Bus, which is all about his time with the Birmingham Barons and the the craziness that follows that. And... And it's and it again shows that uh, Jerry Reisdorf didn't really take this as a serious attempt to play baseball because the reason why they put him in Double A was because oh well there's going to be a lot of media so we want to make sure that the media could be accommodated so the Double A team can accommodate the media this so in Jerry Reisdorf's mind this wasn't a serious thing because if it was a serious thing he would have been like well forget the media. You know, we're just gonna have to limit credentials. People are gonna have to be disappointed. We gotta start him in rookie ball, so he can kind of get his feet wet and develop, and we can see what we got. But it was all to Jerry Reinsdorf. This was all just a you know, this was all Michael just sowing some wild oats. He didn't take it seriously at all. But for Michael, this was serious as a heart attack. Michael was gonna try and make it to the major leagues. Yeah, and and the wild thing about it was he was improving at a rapid rate first to arrive last to lead like busting his ass and just the people that were there is like man if you kept letting him get cuts and letting him do stuff and and the fact that he started his he started his run with like what an 11 game hitting streak and that's when they started throwing him nothing but garbage yeah you know yeah, you know, they were just challenging him with fastballs because that's how it starts for all these guys, right? It, Tebow was the same thing when he went to the minor leagues. It's just like, all right, we're going to go power versus power. We're going to throw a hard fastball and see what you can do with it. And especially people that have hit in the past can generally hit a fastball. Yeah. But then they started throwing – and even his coaches were like, yeah, the breaking balls are coming, Mike. And once they started throwing on the breaking balls, he was lost. But – what did he do? He got in the cage and he turned on the breaking ball machine and he just hit breaking balls and hit breaking balls and hit breaking balls. And like, you know, it's funny again, you know, looking back to being a kid and again, sports illustrated was a big deal. Deal for me. And I remember getting the sports illustrated that called him an embarrassment. Like he's hitting two Oh two. He sucks. What? Oh, what's he even doing? And again, you know, from an adult perspective, you think about, and they did touch on this in the documentary, here's a guy that hadn't played since high school, basically is going up half a dozen levels after not really getting any preparation against double-A aging. And usually, again, the double-A pitchers are the guys that are on their way up. Triple-A is littered with a lot of guys that aren't going to make it. But that double-A is where the cauldron of prospects really is. So he's facing oh, yeah. a lot of prospects all the time. The fact that he was able to hit 202 after not playing for 13 years is pretty insane. And if, and the fact is, there was one point where he was hitting like 130, and his batting average climbed to 202. So he was he was starting to get a comfort level. There are coaches in the White Sox organization that swear that if he would have gotten 
the minors that he would have made the major league roster. How insane would that have been? It's you know, just, I, I don't know look. if he would have been an elite baseball player. He may have been, you know, that the last guy on the bench, but still, that is an insane achievement when you're the greatest basketball player on earth and then you turn around and go, you know, I love baseball. I think I'm going to play. And then you make the major leagues. So even if he stunk, like even if he was a, a 205 hitter in the majors, it's like that would have been an insane achievement. Yeah. Without question. And, you know, the fact that the fact that he stopped and, you know, he starts to get the itch again. And it's funny. It, it's funny how these, these things start because it seemed and I thought they did a really good job of portraying it as such. It seems almost innocuous the way he starts. He just goes to visit and hang around with the guys at uh, the Birdo Center. Just a little bit. And then a little bit more. <laughs> and then a little bit more. And it just, well, you know, before you know it. This in the they didn't mention this in the documentary, but there's another infamous, and it could be fiction, Michael Jordan story from that time period where one of the members of the Bulls, like not the, any of the guys he played with, but one of the lower end members of the Bulls challenged him to a one-on-one -on -one game. And he said, you're a baseball player now. I could beat you. And Jordan immediately just flipped back into, into Air Jordan and just, again, as he usually does, annihilated this dude. Yeah. And that's when everyone was like, hey, um, sure you, you don't miss this? Yeah, and then he decided he did. And then all of a sudden... Here comes, you know, one of the most famous press releases of all time. You know, it's uh, it's almost kind of a badly kept secret in Chicago. He's sneaking into the Birdo Center. He's he's playing, but nobody really knows what's up. And then and they say an announcement's coming, and it's just two words: "I'm back." And I uh, love the story his agent told it. His agent had his agent had crafted this fully worded statement about, you know, his time away and leaving baseball and the decision to come back. And Michael's like, nah, that's not what I want to say. <laughs> well, what do you want to say? I'm back. That's all I need to say. <laughs> it's, and it's so funny. And I bet, I bet to, to you in high school in, in Brooklyn in 1995, it sounded more like something out of a horror movie. It just sounded like I'm back. <laughs> no. No, you know what? Because um, the Knicks beat the Bulls in 94. And then it became, you know, there were a lot of front-running Bulls fans that showed up, obviously, you know, of course, during the three-peat. So a lot of people in New York all of a sudden pretended, I've been a Bulls fan the whole time. No, you haven't. You just start wearing Bulls stuff when they start winning championships. But that year when the, the Knicks finally knocked off the Bulls, ultimately in the finals because John Starks went one for 23 in the game seven. <laughs> but it, all those front-running Bulls fans were like, you only won because there was no money. True. But at the time when he announces he's back, we're like, now we're going to find out. We feel like the Bulls buy. As a fan, you're like, I feel like we've passed you by now. I feel like we're in a position where we're the better team now. 
And when he comes back and struggles, it's a joy at that time of life. It's such a joy to watch him go on national television in his return and not be good. Like, ah, he's a bum now. And he was not a bum now. <laughs> yeah. So, and it, it gets a real interesting, and of course it, it takes an interesting turn because after the nine in the off season in 93 and you know, the close call they have in 94 um, and let's not, let's not gloss over something big that happens in 94 with Scotty, with Scotty Pippen. Um, and this is the one where he felt disrespected and he decides oh, yeah. to sit out the final play, but yet the Bulls still come back and win that game to force a uh, a final game in the Eastern Conference Finals. And the team has this huge thing, and Bill Cartwright just totally cuts him to ribbons and says, you gave up on this. Just like this impassioned speech, this Onita promo, <laughs> just as he's in tears. Um. And just Scotty yeah. just comes this realization, and it's funny because my you know Michael he said it to Phil like and this is how you could tell Michael was still really invested in the Bulls and that Michael really did care about his teammates because he's gone he's off playing baseball but he's watching the Bulls and he calls Phil immediately after that game to find out what happened with Scotty and Phil told him he chose not to go back in the game and Michael goes oh no this is going to haunt him forever and again. In that time period, like, thankfully, history has been very kind to Scotty, and rightfully so. But in yes. that time period, again, it was, that's the migraine guy. That's Softy Pippen. Oh, what a baby. Oh, Michael Jordan would have been in the game. You know, it became, it became this whole, the narrative of Scotty just being a second banana and not being a real star kind of started to snowball on him again. And you can't do that to your team. And it, the craziest thing was where he was talking about it during 2020, Scott, he's talking about it, and he's like, yeah, you know, what I did was wrong, but, 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 but if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the same thing. Like, what? Yeah. That that kind of shocked me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that, I, I was one of those jaw-dropping, like, wow. I mean, I get being, you know, a man of your convictions, but you have to understand even though you thought you were the MVP that year and you wanted to take that shot, it was Tony's time to take the shot. Phil drew up the right play. He did, and Tony nailed it. Now, yeah. Just, oh, man, un- unbelievable. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see that play out as we get to the end here. But uh, the biggest thing is after that and all those things happen – Horace Grant leaves the team, signs a deal with the Orlando Magic, and all of a sudden they look like they have a big three, you know. But instead, and again, um, yeah, Horace leaves the. He feels Jerry Krause disrespected him. Mm -hmm. That Jerry Krause didn't value him, and then Horace Grant goes to Orlando and proves that he's an All Star, and that the only reason he wasn't an All Star in Chicago for the most part is because he was sacrificing for the good of the team. 100% because there's more ball to go around with Penny Hardaway and with Shaq and, you know, already the, the, uh, 
the proto version of Hackashack is finally is you know, starting to come in, even at those early stages in Orlando, with people just trying to like, you know, pretty much just clothesline and chop and fist fight him to keep him from scoring. And you know, Horace was benefiting; he was having some of his best years, and that team. Horace brings them into Chicago, having intimate knowledge of them, and they win that series, and Nick Anderson, with the famous last words, 45 just don't play like 23. Whoa. Yeah, and then he shows up in 23 for the next game, which was hilarious. Yes, Uh, yes. And again, that series, time frame, at the time it happened, it was like, oh, that's a big failure for Michael. Michael just isn't, and even when it was over, like Michael had a great series. If you look at his numbers for the series, he was tremendous. But he was not in basketball shape yet, and he did run out of gas at the end, and he just made mistakes. And it was just so stark to see him screw up. Like you, and you look at some of these games that ended. It ended with him missing last shots, but. Those memories never stood out in anyone's mind because he erased those the next night. He was able to erase that and win the series, even when he missed those last second shots. Mm-hmm. This time, he couldn't do it. So the lasting images of that series were him getting the ball stripped by Nick Anderson and him throwing a ball away trying to get the ball to Pippen for a potential game-winning shot. Like, And people were like, oh, he's not Michael Jordan anymore. He is diminished. The Bulls aren't just going to go off and reel off championship after championship. That it, it's wide open for everyone, and, and most likely it's the Magic with Shaq and Penny that are going to be the dominant force now in the Eastern Conference, and that drove Michael crazy. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, just like the the fuck they are, and we go into from there. He comes out to Burbank, to uh, to my backyard, and goes to the Warner Brothers studio. And meanwhile, while he's saying this, he and his strength and conditioning coach are giving this really, really interesting breakdown on how it works. And he's like, you know, I spent all this time going from a basketball body to a baseball body because it's a different physiological makeup mm-hmm. of the muscles you use for baseball versus the muscles you use for basketball. So I was not ready, even with a truncated season, to go into the playoffs and to take that kind of pounding and to play those guys and to do that. So Warner Brothers essentially built me on the back lot a you know a soundstage, a basketball arena, a, a, like a dome where it had all of his workout equipment and he could film and all this stuff like that. So he starts this hellacious schedule of getting up early, hitting makeup, filming all of this stuff for space jam. And then working out like a madman. And then on top of that, it starts with the guys who are in the movie with him, you know, Charles Barkley, Muggsy Bogues, Patrick Ewing, Sean Bradley, Larry Johnson, and goes further out and extends from there to where the elite in the NBA are buying plane tickets to Los Angeles and they're playing in these pickup games. 
and you know BJ Armstrong is there and they're scouting. They're doing they're doing this stuff and they're taking notes and Michael's busting his ass and training like a man possessed and he's just not going to ha- have that happen again. This devious son of a bitch. <laughs> inviting all these guys out to play these pickup games and these guys are just playing these guys are just out there playing oh this is going to be fun we're going to run against each other we're going to be able to team with each other and do stuff we're not, we can't normally do during the regular season this is going to be a lot of fun and Michael is sitting there taking mental notes on everyone's moves a certain situation against the other elite players and he's got this now this notebook how every player behaves during Real physical, tough, you know, uh, fast-paced basketball games. So he's he's basically now I know how everyone moves before before they know how they're going to move because he's just sitting there studying everyone while everyone else is just out there playing. It, it's a, it's the chess master playing with a bunch of checkers players. Yeah, evil it, genius, it, it, and that's what caused Jeff Van Gundy to call him a con man. Right, right. I, I did love Reggie Miller saying that those were the best games. I thought that was really cool, and it, it spoke very much if, to a moment in time. Space Jam is a horrible movie, but <laughs> if they had a special Blu-ray where one of the extras was a few of those games, I would buy it instantly. <laughs> right? Absolutely. It's, it's almost like another – a generation beyond the Dream Team pickup games. It's just like even beyond yeah. that, if you can believe it. So it's, I wonder it's if Bill so, Murray ever sat in and watched those. He had to have. He had to have. Why hasn't somebody have. asked him about that? Oh my god! That's who there should have been. There was no, 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 Bill Murray in this documentary. Ah, shameful, shameful. Where's Bill? All right, that might be. You know, that and the ghost of Jerry Krause are the only two they missed. Let's be honest. Pretty much. But, uh, yeah. So he comes back. When training camp rolls around, filming's done. You know, it's been a little over two years since the last time he lifted the Larry O'Brien trophy. And it's a different Bulls team. The only guy that's there from his first three-peat and when he left is Scottie Pippen. Everybody else is new or new to him. So he immediately starts treating these guys like rookies. Yeah, his thirst for championship to be back on top of the mountain is absolutely at its apex at this point. He is aggravated about how last season ended to the point where his trainer was like, all right, Mike, tell me uh, when you want to start. Like the night they were eliminated by the magic and he went, I'll see you tomorrow. Like Mike started the day after the magic eliminated him. And now he is going in to that is to give that team a trial by fire to see who is there to put in the work that needs to be put in so they could be a championship team. And he's out of control at this point. Yeah, and it culminates. You know, this this makes the, uh, the Will Purdue incident from the Jordan rules look like the Mickey Mouse Club because it culminates with uh, a really just ferocious pickup game. In practice, uh, it's Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan Garden one another. Uh, Jordan says he's frustrated by what he called Phil Jackson's ticky-tack foul calls. 
so he delivers a hard foul onto Kerr, smallest dude on the team at 6'3", 175, and then goes, now that's a fucking foul. To his credit, Steve Kerr gets up and punches Jordan square in the chest. To which Jordan responds by, and I quote, I hauled off and I hit him right in the fucking eye. Phil throws me out of practice. I'm in the shower and I, and I'm like, I just beat up the littlest guy on the fucking court. I felt about this small. And a rare, as we talked about in part one, a rare moment where Jordan apologizes to somebody. Which, wild. <laughs> Was it was it a full on apology or it was more like, hey, we're gonna have a conversation, and by that conversation, you're gonna know that that we're okay now. I think no, it was more that. It was more. He he straight up said, "I called Steve. I, I called right. the Berto Center. Yeah, and I asked for his yeah. number." And he said the words, "I apologized," and I yeah, felt like the back of my head fell right. out. Did that time. Well, he, because that was just, he, that was, it was a bridge too far. Like, Kerr was getting hammered by him, so Kerr punched him in the chest. When you punch someone in the chest, you're not trying to do damage on someone when you, that's kind of like your little brother going, hey, hey, fucker, leave me alone. (laughs) I'm not going to take this shit, but, but I'm also, I'm not trying to hurt you in any way, shape, or form. So the response being to punch him in the eye when he's the one that instigated everything. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he knew is, it. Yeah. This is a key moment. And now him and Steve the... Kerr are buddies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Jordan and, you know, Steve Kerr says, I think it's because I didn't back down. And then Jordan immediately confirms it. And he was like, he earned my respect because he wasn't willing to back down and be a pawn. And it's notable because out of all the people he's had run ins with, you know, Isaiah Thomas, Jerry Krause, uh, you know, various members of the media, all the stuff like that. The only person in the entire series that gets an apology is Steve Kerr. Well, and if you think about Isaiah Thomas is a weasel in Michael Jordan's yes. mind. Like Isaiah Thomas was never stood up and was accountable. Jerry Krause is a weasel. He never stood up and was accountable for the mistakes he made. Steve Kerr wasn't a weasel. Steve Kerr was a guy that was caught in a bad situation that reacted the same way Michael would have reacted if he was in that situation. So Michael's like, "All right, you, you're good." Yeah, yeah. He he just totally earned his respect, one hundred and ten percent. And it would be an, a catalyst as they went along, because it was and and we'll get there too. I, I keep saying this, but these pieces well, all like weave together. Yeah. Well, and going back to the year before. Uh, in 94, 95, well, in 93, 94, when Michael was gone, they asked Scotty, what was the difference to the team? He's like, well, the, no one was yelling at those guys anymore. Like, Scotty's way of leading was arm around you, gentle leadership, the attaboy. So he's like, you know, when Michael came back, it was like, oh my God, it was like trauma because they just went through a year and a half where it was all chill. And now. The psych was back. Mm-hmm. So the guys were like, what the? Like, there were, uh, I think, um, Wennington kind of was like, oh boy, 
I know what's coming. And everyone else was like, what the hell is happening here? And Scotty kind of stepped back and went, it's his way. Is what we is how we do it now. Yep. Yep. And this sets the stage for, you know, the greatest single season performance by a team ever. Seventy two and ten in the regular season, eleven and one through the first three rounds of the playoffs, and they the steamroller heads to Seattle. Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. And Jordan you know, always, always on high alert for that extra edge, that slight, perceived or uh, or real. He gets one. George Carl, <laughs> a fellow UNC alum, does not come over to say hello to him when he and Ahmad Rashad are in the same restaurant as him in the finals. He said he walked right past me. Is he still annoyed by this 25 years later? He's like, oh, really? That's how you're going to play it? It's a crock of shit. We both went to Carolina. We know Dean Smith. I see him in the summer. We play golf. That's all I needed. For him to do that, it became personal. You know what, though? Here's the thing. If George Carl would have walked up to him and glad-handed him and been like, hey, Mike, you know, so good to see you, UNC guys, you know, Dean says hello. And, like, when he walked away, Mike would have been, this motherfucker's trying to butter me up. So I don't take it out on his team. It's personal. This is he's trying to play games with me. I'm gonna destroy them. That's exactly what would have happened if George Carr would have been his friend at dinner that night. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, he uses that fuel. They go out to a three series lead. And Gary Payton, of course, being hilarious Gary Payton, um, in this, saying Quote, Mike ripped a hole in our ass. Unquote. And then another another one of his more charming aspects as the as uh, Seattle wins two to make it a series. Gary Payton takes the credit because he said he demanded to guard Michael Jordan. He said nobody else would. He didn't want to switch. He didn't want to do any of that. He said it was his approach to defending Jordan that got them back in the series and that if George Carl had let him do that earlier in the series, perhaps it would have been different. And then this is one of those moments where they hand the tablet to Jordan. <laughs> and Jordan's eyes bug out of his head as he's watching this and cackling at Gary puffing himself up. And just is like, I had no problems with Gary Payton. (laughs) I had no problems with the glove. Oh, man. And then, you know, and then there's, you know, the sadness returns because he's like, you know, I had other, I had some other things on my mind. You know, it's again, you see like as focused and driven as he was a couple of days out from Father's Day, he was struggling. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, his dad was at the top of his mind and you weren't getting... It was. I think it was probably the only time in his career where he had trouble focusing on basketball. That first year back, at playing in June, his dad had always been there, and now it's going. Father's Day is coming up, and it's the first Father's Day in the NBA Finals, and his dad's gone, in, in a, one of the most terrible ways it could go in this senseless random murder, and. It was one of the few times that Mike lost that basketball focus, and he was still, you know, better than everyone on the court. But he just wasn't the killer. And then, uh, you know, as sports often does, 
the poetry of Game 6 on Father's Day in Chicago. Yeah, and just that that moment after Game 6 is over, and he he takes the game ball and he retreats into this empty into the empty locker room and collapses on the floor just sobbing that was the first time i've seen that picture and i think i've seen video of it with like, like nbc's music playing over it cuz i think they had their cameras in the locker room mhm that was the first time jordan sobbing was isolated and heard and that was that was that just reached into my stomach and pulled my guts out. Yeah, that was like that ended, and I was just like, "Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man." And it's one of those things where I wish I could go back in time. Like, so if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, my reactions during that NBA Finals would have been very different. Because again, I was totally on. I hope the Sonics beat his ass, you know. Like, like I didn't have an appreciation for what, you know, really what the real world was. So, like, that's one of those things where I totally should have and would have been rooting for Michael Jordan if me now, my brain now, was in my head back then. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the real cliffhanger of Episode 8 is we get the stage set for the Eastern Conference Finals in 1998. And, you know, the Bulls the Bulls had a great season. They're exhausted. They got that shot in the arm from Scotty coming back halfway through. And they have to play Indiana. Just this amazing physical Pacers team led by Reggie Miller and coached by Larry Bird. And, you know, right as it's about to start, credits... And then it picks up, you know, on episode nine, and they got well, Reggie. Well, there was the, it, ended, it ended with the Reggie quote, and we're episode eight. I'm going to be the guy that retires Michael Jordan. Yeah, holy shit, fucking Reggie. Um, so glad they got him for this, you know. And Reggie, one of one of the greatest players I personally have ever watched. I would put him in that list for me. One of the deadliest shooters that there's ever been. Like, the absolute demon of a catch-and-shoot guy. In today's NBA, he, he's another guy that would be easily... He'd be averaging as much as, as James Harden, if not more. Uh, especially with all the help he could get on defense. He, he, he wouldn't be exhausting himself trying to play defense on people. Hated Reggie Miller, too. <laughs> I'll bet. Ugh. He was another guy that, uh, and he was, I, I, you know what, and he was a punk ass back then, and this series, this documentary, though, did confirm that he was a punk ass back then. I was right about that. Okay, so the best opening of any episode was to episode 9, because they go back on the timeline to February of 93, the fight that breaks out between Jordan and Reggie, and then they cut to Reggie today with a story. He said, when I first came into the league, we went and we played Chicago, in Chicago. Wanted to impress the vets. Wanted to put on my best game. I was playing really well. Michael was having a little bit of an off night at that point. He wasn't shooting as, as well as he normally would. And he said, 
he went up to him and said, so you're Michael Jordan. You're the guy that walks on water. So the eyes, the eyes change, the switch flips, and he starts just wrecking the Pacer shit, and they win. And then on his way off the court, MJ finds Reggie, looks him dead in the eyes and goes, don't ever talk trash to black Jesus. <laughs> and I never called him Michael Jordan again after that. <laughs> Fucking incredible. I just was like, oh, man. Oh, that was just amazing. Amazing, amazing. It, I never heard that story before. Yeah, it just seems like it's a never-ending thing where any rookie, hotshot rookie that would come into the league would open up his mouth and Mike would shut it. And and it was like this cycle where the vets would hear the rookie talk trash to Jordan and go, oh, God, why did you do that? Don't ever do that. This, he's just a rookie, man. He doesn't know. Yeah. He's just a rookie. He doesn't know. And, and we're talking like fucking yeah. Hall of Fame guys. You know, as you discussed in part one, the, the Kevin Garnett story where he put Isaiah Ryder in hot water. Or uh, this one right here with Reggie with the origin of Black Jesus. Well, also <laughs> and, going back to 1984 when Jordan was on the Olympic team, they played the NBA Select All-Stars. And it was the first meeting of Larry and Michael. And Larry is an infamous trash talker. Larry Bird was one of the best trash talkers of all time. Yep. And Larry didn't care. He was playing a bunch of college kids. He was going to talk trash. <laughs> and, of course, Michael's getting all the hype. And he goes to Michael, I don't care who you think you are. I'm going to shut you down today. And Michael went, oh? And the U.S. Olympic team, like, smashed the NBA team. And Michael went off. And Larry was like, you know... Larry was the first one to go, you know, maybe I don't want to talk trash to this guy. Yeah, it, it won't end well. It won't end well. So it's, yeah, just absolutely crazy. And then we get uh, we get the time travel gimmick. We go back one year at this point because the gaps are getting smaller and smaller as we get to the end. And we go to 1997 well, in the NBA Finals. I want to circle back because we skipped one thing that I think is hugely important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michael had a little bit of an emotional breakdown, not about his dad, but about talking about his philosophy on winning and how he treated his teammates. And this was so powerful to me where basically he was like, "What would they asked him, what would you say to people that feel like that you were kind of a mean person or, or – a jerk for the way you behaved during these practices. And Michael said, listen, anyone who thinks I was too hard on people has never won anything in their life. You don't understand the sacrifice it takes to win, the sacrifice it takes to be the best, the sacrifice it takes to get there. And as he talked about, the reason why I did that with my teammates is because I had an expectation. I had an expectation that anyone that joined that team would feed into the process the same way. They didn't have to be as good as me, but they had to take approach the game like I did. They had to approach the game with an intensity, with a, a desire to win, at, you know, just to win, to, for it to be the ultimate thing, the only thing that was important is for us to win. And if 
you approached the game that way, then we were fine. And if you didn't approach the game that way, you couldn't be on my team. And he broke down at the end when talking about that because, you know, and, and it was so powerful because here's a guy that really what he was doing was pushing the people that he felt needed to be pushed as hard as he possibly could push them so they could all together have the ultimate success. Yeah, um, that's very true. And yeah, I remember that because he calls for a break and he can yeah. barely talk. And I also, the other the other side of it that stuck out to me was in, in the season that's supposed to be the quote-unquote present day, that 97-98 season, his, the guy he picks on the most, his target is Scott Burrell. And it's just absolutely fucking merciless. Like, when he, like, dunked on him in that practice and he's, like, doing the Joker laugh, <laughs> he's coming back down the court just like an absolute madman and just... He was like, I would, I would push Burrell, push Burrell, push Burrell. You know, just I would let him have it all the time. I wanted, I, I wanted him to push back, and he just never did. He's just a nice dude. Yeah, he, he was just a nice guy. I wanted to fight. I wanted him to want to fight me, and he, he just never got there. And he said, you know, but again, the reason why I did it is at some point, I knew we were going to need him, and I needed to know that when he was put in the fire, that he'd respond. And he never did, and that's why like Jordan liked him. Like Jordan didn't dislike him, but that's why he said to him the last night of the Utah series, if I ever see you after this, I'm gonna whip your ass. <laughs> I'm gonna start a bar fight. fight. Yeah. Because he was like, you know, you never you never dedicated he never dedicated himself the way Michael felt like he should have. Bill Wen Bill Wennington even said, Back then I thought Michael was a jerk and a bully. But now, looking back, I realized he was just trying to get the most out of everyone, and that was his way to go about things. And then when you got to a certain level, like Scotty didn't get put through all that bullshit anymore once he became Jordan's partner. Mm -hmm. like He wasn't mercilessly ripping Scotty because Scotty was out there practicing like a demon too. He wasn't doing it with Rodman because one, Phil told him, hey – if you get all over this guy, we're going to lose him forever. And also, Rodman was a maniac on the court. Like, Jordan knew, if nothing else, with all the craziness going on with Dennis Rodman, that when the ball went up, that Rodman was going to be doing Dennis Rodman things to help them win 99% of the time. So he yeah. let Phil handle Dennis. But all those, like, fringe guys, he wanted to push them so hard. And he wanted to get the best out of them. You know, and it, it resonated with me because in my real life, I managed apartments. And I've always had the philosophy of you don't have to be the most talented person. You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to get things the quickest. What I want to see, though, is that desire, that desire to improve, that desire to be the best, that desire – to get to the point where you are a master of what your role is. And if you give me that, I, I will give you all the time in the world 
to get that improvement and get there and I will work with you. If you don't give me that, I am a miserable fucking bastard to work for. And so like I was like, oh my god, I'm Michael Jordan. Because <laughs> if someone shows up and they're like just here to collect a paycheck and they I they're not taking feedback and they're not growing and they're not improving and they're not doing their best, I will ride their ass until they wanna go. Because they don't belong with the rest of my team. And like so when he made that you know, when he said that, I was like, Oh my god. It's so true, and he's so right now. I take a more Phil Jackson approach to things where I learn everyone individually, and I poke and I prod, and I see how I can connect with people and get the best out of them that way. I'm more Phil than Michael when it comes to that. But mm-hmm. if I would have had this role, these roles that I've had later in life as a 25, 26, 27-year-old person, I would have been completely that monster Michael Jordan to those people. Like, I wouldn't have given a shit about your personal shit. You're not here and you're not performing? Fuck all y'all. I'm going to drive you. You're either going to get better or you're going to cry. One of those two things is going to happen. You know, as I got older, I more morphed into Phil. But, man, it's like, it's it's kind of, it's like, yeah, there's, it's, why would you show up someplace if you're not going to devote yourself to being the best you could possibly be? Like, I'm totally on board with that and that's one of those things where people are like this is the thing that's going to make people think that Michael is a completed asshole I was like no I totally get it and I agree with him maybe he shouldn't have been as big of a dick to people as he was as he was at times but like he said how are you going to deal with the Knicks if you can't deal with me riding you in practice yeah yeah absolutely it was just but the the stuff they got on there, like him riding Ron Harper and yeah, the Scott Burrell stuff was just yep. an absolute no, no, another level. But yeah, different it, – it was Phil's job to kind of have that different approach for those different dudes. That was all on him. And it culminated in that with uh, them getting to the finals and in 96-97 they have the Jazz waiting there for them. And at this point, we start to see that it's a harder slog up the mountain. And the biggest, uh, the biggest example of that is two in the morning, before uh, the night before Game Five. He's starving. Nowhere's open except one pizza place in Salt Lake City. They order suspiciously. Five dudes bring that pizza to them. What a horrible Jordan mistake. Eats- Oh, Jordan eats the whole fucking pizza by himself. And, uh, you know, not too long after, he's just violently throwing up. So, interestingly, the flu game was never the flu game. It was the food poisoning game. Yeah, I mean, I first of all, I think they did that to him on purpose. I think they did stuff to that pizza. Because I, the one thing I thought about is, if you are... The absolute okay, and Utah is jazz crazy. So it isn't like it isn't like if, if David Ortiz went to a pizza place in New York where they'd be like, oh, we gotta take out Big Poppy. Like Yankee fans would be like, Yankees could beat these guys. Like you know, it's not like this, you know. <laughs> in Utah though, with the jazz, that's their life for a lot of those people. And they talked about how like vile kind of that crowd was when it came to 
the reactions. That's why the kids didn't go to Utah for the series. Yeah. That crowd was not a friendly crowd to be around. So if I'm Michael Jordan's circle, I'm like, dude, you are the most hated man in Utah right now. They think you're the only thing standing between them and a championship. The pizza place, that's the only thing that's open at 2 in the morning. You don't think those are going to be some hardcore psycho jazz fans that are going to throw some shit in that pizza? I'll Here's cook you something. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing to me. How did they know it was Michael Jordan? Did they actually say that the order was for Michael Jordan? That's what I want to know. That that's that, that's what I want to know because if they said something that would lead them to believe that it was for him, then yeah, it's he just that would be the reason that five dudes showed up and he's just violently ill and like his mother's saying you can't play and he's like I gotta play. What are you talking about? They had to have known it was Michael's. There's no way five guys were gonna show up to give him a pizza. Yeah, yeah, it's so 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 weird. But uh, the fact that he goes out and then just not only survives, he could have gone out and been the decoy the entire time, but he drops 38 and they win that game by a bucket. The most mind-blowing thing was Jerry Sloan, former Bull star Jerry Sloan, in the post-game press conference, and they ask him about, you know, how do you think Michael performed, you know, even after being sick. And he's like, he was sick. Am I the last person to know? And again, it's mind-blowing because if the coach of the Jazz knows that Michael Jordan has the flu, he probably is so physical with him to wear him out. Right? You don't play him the same way. He's like, well, he's got the flu, so lean on him. Wear him out. You know, let's not be afraid of him today. Let's go at him today because if he's sick... We could, might be able to get him out of the damn game. Mm-hmm. How do you not know he was saying it was being reported everywhere? I'm like, I'm astounded that he didn't know that Michael Jordan was ill. Like, it was like the president got sick. Yeah, yeah. What, or that what someone a... on his team, or that someone on the team wasn't like, hey, man, I was watching uh, the news earlier today. Jordan's sick. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, let's take yeah. Okay, let's take that into account. Yeah, and it's just the because they were they were following him. You know, as we said back when he went to France in episode one, they called him bigger than the Pope. You know, not much of an exaggeration there. Uh, and even just so. watching him on the court, it wasn't like he was hiding it well. It was clear no. he was he was messed up. So like, how, like it's mind-boggling that this Hall of Fame coach was just like, "You're sick, what?" Yeah, crazy, just absolutely out of control. And you know, speaking speaking of out of control, um, a a really nice surprise through these last two episodes, John Stockton. Um, really cool to see him. One of, I think, the the truly great, again, just like I said about Reggie, but maybe even more so, one of the greatest players I ever watched, a guy that doesn't nearly get his due. It was really nice to see him be the representative on camera today for the Jazz. I thought that was pretty yeah, awesome. And, and again, you could tell why he was also elite, because 
he's like, I respected them, but we thought we were going to beat them. We weren't afraid of them. You can't approach it that way. The second, you know, if, if I was afraid of Michael Jordan, we automatically lose. So no, we weren't. We didn't have a fear of, of playing Michael Jordan. We wanted the challenge. We we thought we were good enough to win. It just didn't work out. Yeah, and just the the insane levels that he went to, you know, collapses at the end of game five, and then they go on to win that series in six games. Jumps up on the scorers table. Um, also, his. Uh, the fight with Steve Kerr comes back and pays off huge dividends as he is the hero that clinches that series. And we also have the heartbreaking story of Steve Kerr's dad. Oh my God. I never knew. Uh, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, Steve Kerr's dad being a, uh, expert on middle East studies all through the seventies and eighties teaching at UCLA, uh, which sparks, Steve's love for basketball as he is in Pauley Pavilion, you know, at the feet of uh, John Wooden during the prime of the UCLA program, you know, watching Bill Walton and these scores of guys come through there and play amazing basketball. And then gets only one scholarship offer, goes to U of A, and while he's doing that, eventually... Just about every member of his family goes to uh, work at American University in Beirut. And uh, the minute he lands, he lands late, uh, he being Malcolm Kerr in this case, uh, and becomes the acting president and then the permanent president of American University The after getting off the plane because the uh, – president that he was going to go serve under disappeared and didn't surf, didn't resurface. And he his first interview with the media, he's like, well, that if I'd arrived on time, that could have been me, I guess. And then just goes about his job. And, yeah, and goes about his job, you know, by all accounts, did a phenomenal job out there, and then unfortunately two people posing as students murdered him. Just insane, because the the, the unrest in Beirut was – the tensions were so high that if you were an American, you know, they were they were taking you out as, as essentially what the story was. And Malcolm Kerr was arguably the high-profile American there working for the and, United and, States government. And there was a mo another moment that made me sad where they asked Steve Kerr, did you and Michael ever talk about, you know, your shared experience of, you know, losing your father in cold-blooded murder? And he was like, no. Never discussed it. It's kind of like, you know, it's it's kind of like, wow, you know, if you had kind of forged that bond, it's weird it would never come up. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind be, of so it's like yeah, so so you weren't really you're not really friends, you know, you're teammates, and you're you're bonded by that, but you guys aren't really friends. Yeah. But then again, who who could Michael talk to about that? You know, he was already living he you know, he wasn't just living in a different tax bracket. He was like living in a diff, on a different planet because of the fishbowl that he was in compared to those other guys. Well, I wonder if Michael even knew what happened to Steve Kerr's dad. Cuz you would I, I I would think 
at that point, with the trust he had in Kerr, like closing in on Father's Day for that previous champion for the championship against the, the, the Suns, that at that point, if Jordan was struggling, he may have said, "Hey, man, you got it." <laughs> but who knows if Michael even knew? And like, if you and and I guess if you're Steve Kerr, it's like, what, what do you do? Go, hey, uh, so. I just wanted to let you know that uh, my dad was shot and killed too. So if you need anyone to talk to you know, with this Father's Day coming up, I know it might be tough on. You. I'm here for you, buddy. So I guess it's kind of awkward to kind of have that conversation. There's like no natural way to just be like, "Hey, man." So we share something in common. It's not a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's just. No, it, what an incredible story, and what an unexpected, like, final flashback in the next-to-last episode that there was a spotlight put on Steve Kerr, who's gone on to be, you know, arguably the premier coach in the NBA. He takes over the Warriors organization and completely turns it into a winner. Yeah, and much like, and it's interesting, much like Doug Collins and Phil Jackson... Mark Jackson kind of brings the Golden State Warriors up another level, gets fired after basically being coach of the year because they were like, you know what, this guy is going to be able to get us all the way over the hump. Steve Kerr is hired by Phil Jackson to coach the Knicks. Before a contract is signed, the Warriors reach out to Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr says, Phil, I made a commitment to you, and if you won't let me go, I'll coach the Knicks, but I would rather take this opportunity in Golden State. And Phil says, Steve, I would never make you do something you weren't comfortable with. You're either all in or you're all out. Go. Good luck in Golden State. And Phil Jack- and Steve Kerr takes over for Mark Jackson, who is considered to be a really good coach. And it was a little bit head-scratching until some personal behind-the-scenes stuff came out that he got fired. And now takes over and takes Golden State to this ultimate glory. Yeah, and and proved to be the right decision as he did it, you know, more than once. Yeah, they they didn't three peat, but they won three championships. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it, his his story was was so incredible and was like this this thing that I didn't see coming. It was nothing I knew about. So it was a real gut punch, but it also made for this incredible moment. You know, combined with the the pr- fight and practice, when Kerr hits that shot, they win the series, and then he has you know the ultimate troll job at the victory rally. Well, I also love the moment. I love the moment because Jordan now trusts him implicitly, and even though Steve mm-hmm. Kerr struggling in the game, Jordan still trusts him. So they ran. They're running this play that the the Jazz shut down before they were able to strip Jordan. But Jordan saw that Kerr was wide open when the Jazz collapsed on the play. So Jordan's trying to whisper to him, because he knows all cameras are on him, Steve, just be ready. And Kerr's like, okay, Mom, I'm going to come off that screen, and I'm going to be ready. (laughs) Oh, my God. He's so gung-ho. And, of course, he hits the shot, and then go ahead with the troll job at the uh, press conference, at the uh, post-game celebration. At the victory rally, when he got up there, and he was like, you know, Michael said, I, 
man, Phil, I, I don't know if I want to take this shot. I don't trust it. Why don't we give it to Steve? <laughs> and just the pure, like, gigantic laugh this gets from both of them that are sitting right behind him. He, Kerr never looks behind him, just immediately commits to the bit. Just huge ovation on stage and off for this. Like, that put that in his Hall of Fame reel someday. Holy crap. Yeah, watching Michael lose it while Kerr's, like, telling this fantasy version of events was, like, again, it's that awesome, like, teammate stuff. It's, like, Kerr's busting his balls. Everyone knows, you know, Michael was supposed to take the shot. And Michael's loving it because his boy hit the game-winning shot. And, again, full circle, Kerr, Steve Pack, uh, John Paxson, was the guy that Kerr looked at and went, that's what I could be in the NBA. Paxson hits the shot during the first three-peat. Kerr hits the shot during the second three-peat. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love that Paxson was the bridge that brought him into that team and said, this is what Michael expects. And this I also, is what he's looking for. I also laugh because I did not know that Steve Kerr was a Cleveland Cavalier when the Cavs and the Bulls were having those playoff series. So once again, Jerry Krause just went out and grabbed someone that was from one of the Bulls' rivals and stuck him on the Bulls. Yeah, so so good. And again, Jerry Krause, you know, despite all the boneheaded things he would say, especially in that final year, he, he was always looking. He was always watching. He was... He definitely understood the team he needed to build around Michael Jordan. He was able to put together the pieces to fit around Michael to make that a juggernaut. You know, unfortunately for Jerry during the rebuild, he was never able to find, with all this tinkering and all his aggressive trading, he traded draft picks within a year, and he was always trying to look for the next big thing. So the Bulls were an absolute disaster when the rebuild started, and I'm shocked that... Uh, when they did the where are they now stuff, you know, what happened after stuff uh, graphic at the end, they did not point out the Bulls rebuild started and was a miserable failure. Yeah, yeah. And just it, it brings into questions, questions that will be wrapped up in the final episode. But uh, they end this one and then it's like we're all out of flashbacks. As we go into the final one, it's focusing on, you know, how do how do they get past the Pacers? How do they get back the finals? And the Jazz are waiting for them at the end. And it just the the tension really built to this final episode, and I thought it was really well done. And one the moment I was waiting for happens early in episode ten. Oh man, and. Uh, that is game, you know, we'll, we'll get there, actually. I, I, I don't want to shortchange the, uh, the Pacers series because, you know, Reggie says, I still to this day believe we were the better team, but that champion experience, that championship pedigree, it definitely came into play and it was definitely important. And again, when, with elite athletes, because Barkley said the same thing. He's like, I think we were the better team. They just happened to win that series. Ewing used to say it every year in the post, you know, lost to the Bulls press conference. And Michael Jordan eliminated Pat. And they flashed this up because they're still trying to torture me. The guy that 
Michael Jordan eliminated from the playoffs more than anyone else was Patrick Ewing. They knocked out the Knicks four times when Ewing was a Nick. But every time the Bulls knocked out the Knicks, Patrick Ewing did the lame, I think I still think we're the better team. They just had the better series. But that's how, as an elite athlete, because if you ask Stockton and Malone, they'd probably say the same thing. I think we were a better team. They just had the better series because that's how an elite athlete thinks. It's, it's amazing to get to, to see that mindset of, I can't give anything. I'm not going to sit there and say those guys were better because I can't admit that. We were better. They just happened to do what they needed to do and ball bounce their way a couple of times, so they got lucky. Yeah, it's the the amount of respect that these guys have, even through the mountains of trash talking, really shown through. I, I do love that they pointed out that Reggie Miller did mug Michael Jordan on the game-winning shot that he hit to extend the series and send it back to Game 7. Oh my god, he almost went flying uh, to half court. And he was like, it was a gentle push. <laughs> uh, I, I think he pulled out a pair of brass knuckles and like nailed him in the chest. He heard Steve. Kerr, he heard from Steve Kerr that Michael Jordan's weakness <laughs> was a punch in the chest. So he punched him in the chest when trying to get free on the screen. Oh, it, it did it! It did it! But um, man, they they exerted so much to win that seven game series and even make it to the final round. Yeah, that series I remember very clearly, and that was probably one of the few times. And obviously, I, I always thought, well, maybe the Knicks can do it. But that was truly one of the few times, even against the Orlando, in the Orlando series when they got knocked out, I was shocked. I was kind of like, wow, I didn't expect that. The Pacers series was kind of the first time where I was watching a Bulls playoff series during that run and thinking, Pacers might do this. Especially when they jumped out to that big lead in Game 7. I was like, holy crap. And then in typical Jordan fashion, they just came flying back. But... The pay, that Pacers team was dangerous. So there's a story that wasn't told on the documentary. And Jalen and Jalen Rose, it's again, these athletes that hold on to things forever. So Jalen mm-hmm. Rose was a member of that team, and he was a good defensive player. Not a star, but he was a good defensive player. And at some point late in Game 7, Larry put Jalen on the bench and never put him back into the game. And I forgot who they, they rode for the rest of the game, but it was someone who was not as good of a defender. And Jalen, to this day, says that I wouldn't talk to Larry for like a week because I felt like that's what cost us the playoffs, that if I would have gotten back off the bench and gotten into the game, that I could have played enough defense that we could have knocked off the Bulls in Game 7. And you know the, the, what broke the ice between Larry Bird and Jalen Rose was Larry kind of going – I suppose I should have put you back in. And at that point, Jalen was like, all right, he's admitting you made a mistake. So we're good now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty monumental. That's almost as big as Jordan admitting he made a mistake to get Bird to admit he made a mistake. God damn. But again, one of the great moments in sports is Reggie Miller hits that three and they cut to Larry Bird. And Larry Bird, everyone's celebrating going nuts. And Larry Bird is stone faced because he knows there's still 1.1 seconds left on the clock and that Michael Jordan's going to be able to take a shot. So Larry's seen this movie before. Yeah. And that shot 
goes halfway down and pops out. Ugh. This impossible double pump flying jump shot. If he would have hit that shot, then it just would have been like, Utah, just stay home. Don't even yeah. bother. I mean, they shouldn't have bothered anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but if he would have hit that shot. That. <laughs> yeah, the fact that that nearly went in. You know, I knew the results, and 22 years later, I still held my breath as it rolled around. Like, even Reggie's like, I'm standing at the angle I'm standing, and I'm watching the fight of the ball, and I'm like, oh my god, he's going to do this. That's going in. Like, oh my god. Like, and Michael said, yo, you know, it was pretty cool. For 1.1 seconds, everyone in that arena had to hold their breath. Because <laughs> they had to be scared of me taking that shot. He, yeah, he said, I think that's kind of cute. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. And, yeah, on they go. And they have a rematch with the Jazz. And back they go to uh, the Delta Center in Salt Lake, looking like the fucking Republican National Convention. Holy, that was, that, those crowd shots were some of the scariest things I've seen in a long time. That was oh, a... And you, you say, like, well, how is there really a home field advantage? When you walk out of a tunnel and that angry mob is screaming, hell, Lord knows, because even the Indiana crowd, that was a nasty crowd too. And there was the one woman who was over Luke Longley's shoulder, and Luke Longley kept on like turning his head to the side, who was just screaming, God damn you! God oh. damn you! And it's like, whoa, calm down! That crazy Karen is just like burned into my brain now. I'm like, holy crap, relax! You boo, you cheer, but let's not goddamn people. <laughs> let's not tell people to burn in hell for playing a sport against the team you like. Let's let's settle down. It was yeah, it was absolute insanity, and it made it made a lot of sense why uh, Jordan's kids didn't go. Yeah, it, it made all the sense in the world, and like, but yeah, holy hostile crowd, Batman. It was just bananas out of the gate. Um, and I believe, uh, they said that, uh, the Bulls win the, f or they, they win a split one and one coming out of, uh, Utah. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And then now we get to the moment, the practice before game three, Rodman doesn't show up. They don't know where he is. It's a Monday night. Turn over to TNT. On Monday Nitro, out comes Hollywood Hulk Hogan. He waves to the entrance, and who comes out but NWO member Dennis Rodman. Rodzilla comes strutting out to the ring, and they start the build to the Bash at the Beach deal and the angle with that would culminate in the big tag match with Hogan and Rodman versus we didn't know this yet and they never go back to it uh ddp and carl malone and just that episode they show the the clips of him and you know hogan making the wisecrack about a party like this is worth missing practice for and uh show him beating dallas page on the back of the head with a chair and all this stuff like that and then they go back to the uh the archival footage of uh, the Bulls and, you know, Phil saying, you know, Phil cracking wise. Also, it's all the standard wrestling stuff from, you know, snooty sports people who think they know better 
talking about he's an embarrassment to the game and oh he's going to get fined twenty thousand dollars for skipping practice and going to do some scripted show and uh the but the best part is they they're at practice they're coming out of the huddle and you just hear you don't see him but you hear him unmistakably in the middle of the huddle as they're all walking away jordan just going rodzilla Rodzilla. Well, there was an awesome juxtaposition because you have like the Sports Center anchor going, you know, the Bulls coaches, the teammates are all embarrassed by this. This is, you know, just, they all think this is despicable. And then it cuts to that practice where they're all like laughing and Jordan's screaming Rodzilla at him. So clearly, whatever source told them the Bulls were upset with Dennis Rodman, at that point they were just they were all used to Dennis. This is years with Dennis now. So nothing Dennis was going to do unless he didn't show up for a game was going to cause angst at the team. And Phil had the great line. It's like, you know, are upset. What was it? Like they asked him, are you upset that Dennis is causing a distraction? It's like it's a distraction for you, not for us. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. But it was clear that, that the Bulls team itself had really no issue with him showing up on Nitro. And I'm sure when they all found out about it, they were like, are you shocked? If you would list – if and I wish they would have asked Jordan about it in 2020 because I think Jordan would have said, like, if you gave me a list of 20 things Rodman was going to do, show up unexpectedly at a pro wrestling event after missing practice probably would have been 21. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it sure beat the hell out of Jordan having to drag him out of Las Vegas while Carmen Electra was naked in the closet. Did he come back the next day? He did. <laughs> well, I love I love the uh, the clip the clip comment from Bob Costas during the game highlights. While the Dennis Rodman tired freak show continues on the court, he's still a force. Yeah, well, Costas has always been up his own ass. Let's not forget that. Um, and I they did they did cut out Costas's like you know sound bites slamming wrestling during that during the. Uh, the part of the series where Malone and Rodman are just like practically fucking wrestling on the court, just tripping each other and falling all over each other. You know, Rodman swats him on the ass. Malone swats him back on the ass and, 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 Ro and Dennis turns on and goes, Ooh, well, I love that. Um, Costas is screaming. This has to be a flagrant foul. And I think Isaiah was doing the color commentary and goes, this is good. Hard basketball. <laughs> fucking Isaiah. Yeah, did you catch the other wrestling cameo during this episode? Oh my god, I was going to talk about that because I didn't. Um, Tyler Fullington was the one I saw tweeted on Twitter after the episode aired. And it is, I shit you not, the Sandman at the hotel after the sixth and final title win. And there he is high-fiving Michael Jordan as he's going through the lobby absolutely insane i believe hack was in wcw at that point he was living in south sandy utah so i guess he just decided yo let's go to the hotel <laughs> oh my god uh, you know hack doing hack things you know it should surprise me but it doesn't oh i saw him and i was like you gotta be kidding me the fucking sandman <laughs> incredible incredible um, no, I, I, I saw it on Twitter after the fact, and I went, no 
fucking way. How did I miss that? But, uh, wild. Um, but yeah, the series, we have one of the most indelible basketball memories of my childhood. I remember where I was when I, when I saw the score 96 to 54. And my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> and, uh, and then we go to Jerry Sloan going, Jesus, is, is that the final score? Really? <laughs> it, Jerry Sloan does not come off as the sharpest spoon in the draw during this documentary. No. His, uh, I don't know if it was his attempts at self-deprecating humor or, or what happened, but he did not come off very well at all. Between that and, like, I didn't know he was sick. <laughs> just uh, just about eviscerates him. Yeah, I couldn't believe. Like, again, at that point, I was like, they're going to run through them for the rest of the series. How could anyone score 54 points in an NBA final game? Like, ridiculous. It was one of the ugliest games <laughs> that's ever been. And I mean, like, uglier than, like, the 73-71 Spurs-Pistons final slog fest. It was, ugly. it was just like, it was like when you put rookie mode on NBA 2K, and you're just like, I'm just going to run around dunking on people, and they're not going to be able to score because they suck because it's rookie mode. Yeah, it's just super, super weird. And to this day, I think it's the lowest score by a team in any era of the NBA. Yeah, no one scored less than that. And and if you think of it, this is the NBA final, and the Jazz were a great team. So you think about all the times like these great juggernaut teams in history have played these trash teams, and that's never happened. And here we are in the NBA final where the Western Conference champion is playing the Eastern Conference champion, and you lay that egg? The fact that they came back and won games after that is a real testament to the guts that that team had. Yeah, it, it, just no way that should have gone any further than that. It was a it was another one of those just go home moments. Uh, but they they come back and they they get to it. I'm really disappointed, however. Speaking of stories they don't tell in this. Uh, another one that centers around Carl Malone, and maybe it's that's because they uh, they didn't get to interview him. I don't know if he turned it down or if he wasn't available or they didn't ask. Uh, but one of my favorite Scottie Pippen oh, moments yeah. of all time, when Malone is at the free throw line, you know, games on the line, Pippen comes by, and one of the best trash talk lines there's ever been, you know. Walks walks right up to him as he's he's going to uh, his side, pats Carl on the butt and goes, "Mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays," and he misses both free throws. Just absolute cold blooded murder by Scottie Pippen, and I was I was real sad that that didn't make it in there. You know, I felt like just about everything else did, but the fact that that one moment did not. There wasn't a ton of Carl, but there was, what they did show was seeming to me like an effort to portray him as a really great sportsman. Mm-hmm. Because what you saw of him was him seeking out Michael to congratulate him, including after being losing the final, 
going out to the Bulls team bus before the Bulls left to go back to the hotel to party to get on the bus yeah. to hug Michael and congratulate him. Yeah. Um, He's the anti-Detroit Piston. Yeah, for sure. The anti-Isaiah. He and John Stockton. Um, just absolutely, absolutely going out of their way to do that after after both years. After the heartache of both years of losing in six. And that that leads us into it. You know, we make it a series and then we go to the famous shot. You know, there's the the one in Cleveland back in 89 was called the shot. And then nine years later, we get, you know, what is now more commonly known as the shot. And this one has deep roots because Byron, uh, Brian Russell had been running his mouth about Jordan for a long time, going all the way back to his rookie year. That he was he was one of those people that was like, man, you retired. You retired before I could guard your ass. I was going to shut you down. And people were around him like, oh, you don't want to do that. And sure enough. And, again, and, Carmelo, like, and again, verbatim, Carmelo goes, Mike, he's just a rookie. He doesn't understand. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and that's when Mike is Drew, retired. They're still saying, Mike, he's just a rookie. The dude's retired. And they're saying, oh, he's just a rookie, man. Just let it be. <laughs> please, please, Hammer, don't hurt him. And, uh, yeah. And he's like, it's like a mafia you know, don. Like, hey, hey, he doesn't understand the way it works yet. Please don't, don't have him whacked. Please. Amazing. And he said that he had him, he had him circled on his list forever after that. And so you could tell he took a very deep sense of satisfaction that that shot was against, um, was against Brian Russell. And they really break it down yes. in any argument as far as, oh, well, he pushed off and stuff like that. Costas, with an admittedly amazing line, said he his push was at most the equivalent of a Mater D guiding you to your seat in a fancy restaurant. And, and they again, through the eyes of a Bulls-hating Knicks fan at that time, that, my brain remembered that for the longest time as an absolute shove in the hip. Like, that's how my brain processed it. He freaking shoved him in the hip and pushed him away and hit the shot. You know, but I said, but, but I, to my credit, I said, but Reggie Miller did the same thing to him in the Eastern Conference Finals, so yep, it happens. But as the years have gone by, and I've seen it again and again, I'm like, yeah, he kind of barely, there's no way that Michael Jordan from that little on the side could have moved him Five feet, like like he he ran past him. But the what I love that Michael broke down is why Russell wasn't that good of a defender. And he's like played on his toes. Yeah, he, so I knew all I had to do was shoulder fake him, and he'd go flying right by. And that's exactly what happened. Yep, faked him right the fuck out of his shoes, and he was already going. He was already going, and he hits that shot. They they win the whole thing. And then, you know, that's that's the end of the story. That's where they leave it. They win six. You know, sure enough, everybody goes their separate ways. And, yeah, we have that very revealing, you know, postmortem from Jordan that said after, again, one last time, they hand him the tablet to watch what somebody else says. And we see, as we hear from Reinsdorf, the reasoning that had never been discussed with Michael about why 
they didn't try to get everybody back and why they rebuilt. And, you know, Reinsdorf went above Jerry Krause's head and said, I want Phil back and invited him back personally. You know, Phil, to his credit, was like, you know, that would completely have made for an untenable situation for Krause. You know, it was done. They, you know, everybody wasn't coming back. I would, we, it wasn't going to be something where we could have a rebuilding. I wanted to go through a rebuilding like that. And so, no, that was the end of it. Uh, Michael wasn't having it. He said that, uh, you know, when he heard Reinsdorf say that uh, the market value on all these guys was going to be too high for their actual output, you know, that guys like Steve Kerr and Scotty Pippen and Ron Harper – we're going to be too work too much on the free market. He just was like, "Are you telling me that if all the you said to all these guys we want to go for seven, we want to really cement this get four in a row, that if you didn't give all those guys one year deals they wouldn't have come back? I know I would have come back. I know Phil would have come back. You know, Scotty probably would have taken some some convincing, but if I'm there and you know Phil is there and Dennis is there, he'd have done it." And he's just like, it eats at him to this day. You can totally tell. He was like, I knew that I could have done it. And that's why I think that Knicks rumor is true. I think if there wasn't a lockout, he would have gone to the Knicks because he was so pissed off at Jerry Krause and he didn't understand what was happening. And it was so crazy because he brought up this great point. It's like, so the season ends and now we're the champions. And then you go back to Phil and go – Oh, hey, you know, we would like to have you back. They could have avoided every problem by not opening their mouths and saying this was it at the beginning of the season. Not telling Phil, I don't care if you go 82-0, we're not going to bring you back. Like, they brought all that on themselves. So how could Phil come back? So come on, him asking Phil back. It's garbage. There's no way. That was done just so he could say I did it. Because how could Phil come back? Phil would have been a maniac to go back. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it blew my mind when he's like, it still haunts me. It's like, all your success, the greatest player of all time, the most beloved basketball player of all time, all the scoring titles, all the MVPs, you know, all the praise. And you can't just be like, yeah, what a great career. You're like, I can't believe we didn't get a chance to go for seven because some executives are dickheads. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do love stepping back a minute because we we talked about the shot and the breakdown of the shot but I don't want to have that lesson what kind of gets lost in there in that that 45 seconds may arguably be the best 45 seconds that any one player has ever had he he comes up just completely blindsides Carl Malone and steals the ball beautiful play he Nick Anderson him he did to, to Malone what Nick Anderson did to him Absolutely. On on that fateful night that Nick Anderson opened his mouth and ruined it for the rest of the league and said 45 don't look like 23 to me. Um, he got him on that. He go he brings it down, gets the layup, then gets the ball and makes the shot and they win the series. And it was just his it was like his magnum opus. It was his ninth symphony. It was his, you know, it was it was his Hey Jude. It was his Suffragette City. It was it was insane. And, and again, like you can't write this stuff. 
Michael came into the league as a one-man show, basically, on a bad Bulls team. Now he gets Scotty, and he gets Dennis, and he gets a nice little crew that fit together nicely. But what happens in his final game? His main running guy, his partner, the guy that made all of the winning possible for him, blows out his back right at the beginning of the game on his first dunk. So Michael is left without with a diminished Scotty. Scotty really couldn't do anything except for just be out there for the rest of the game. So Michael has to go back to what he did way back in the beginning and carry the team on his back because without Scotty, Dennis doesn't score. Dennis is rebounding in defense. So yep. Michael has to take on the scoring load because he doesn't have Scotty to really help him because Scotty can't elevate, Scotty really can't shoot, Scotty can't do much except exist on the court as a decoy. Yep. And and uh, let's not and this you know the lengths he goes to to stay in yep. that game should dispel the softy Pippin deals forever. More. Now, once again in a critical game, Scotty pulls up lame. He is a loser. Yeah, F- fuck that <laughs> shit. He was still making shots. He was still making plays, and it just excruciating pain. Hey, as somebody, and and you were there. Yep. You saw it all. You saw like. I I had what could have came within a millimeter or two of being like a crippling back injury. I dodged a bullet, like L four, like you know, L four, L five, and S one. I believe it was the diagnosis on my, on my left side, and I went through rehab for that for months and months and months, and you know to to get back to normal and train my ass off and stuff like that. So if anybody understands just how ridiculous the amount of pain that Scotty was in. It's me. And the fact that he would go be put on a table and it just they they were throwing a battery of things at him, lightning speed. You know, a shot of this, some of that, like five minutes of massage to get him back out there. And they were trying to time it for the most important times to put him back out on the court. And finally they got him the last time he went back there, they waited until there was ten minutes left in the game and they sent him out. And out there he stayed. And just, he was just miserable the entire time you could tell. But just absolutely gutly, gutsy, forgotten performance pretty much. Yeah, and I think two things drove it. He was doing it, right? Because again, the migraine game, he finally said, nah, I'm not going back out again. And again, rightfully so. But I think he was driven by the fact that the Ku coach game stuck with him, and that was his real that was his reputation from then on. And there was that moment. This is how important he was to Michael. Like Michael said to him, "Just just get out there. I don't care that you can't do anything. Just please be out there." And Scotty knew yeah. that Michael needed that. Like just the, the the confidence to see Scotty on the court, even though he knew Scotty really wasn't able to do anything. But knowing that Scotty was out there was like a security blanket for Michael. If Scotty doesn't gut that up, I don't think Michael gets to the point where he hits that last shot. I mean, yeah. That I, I can definitely see that. So, yeah. It's, and think about how insane the 90s were for sports. So the Bulls dynasty ends, and then the Yankee dynasty is pretty much in its run right after it. Like, we got two... 
back to back in two different sports, two of the greatest dynasties that ever existed in their respective sports over a span of 1992 to 2001. Yeah, yeah, it was it was brutal. It was brutal. I hate the Yankees. Um, <laughs> so it was like Derek Jeter was like, my turn. Yeah, yeah, and I, it it eats at me to this day. And then um, the Patriots came along at the same time. And then in 2000, so the 90s end, the Yankee dynasty ends in 2001, and then the Patriots are like, all right, here we are. So back to back to back. Three of the greatest dynasties in the history of sports form in three in the three major sports. Yep, like, insane. And, and don't don't forget the Lakers. Yeah, Phil Phil takes over the Lakers. He pulls Shaq and Kobe together. They win three championships together. Kobe decides that he hates Shaq. Phil has to rebuild it around Kobe again. It takes a while to get because Kobe's out of control. It takes a while to get Kobe under control. They get Gasol. That settles everything down, and they win two more. Unbelievable. Yeah, uh, Phil Jackson, the greatest coach in NBA history, maybe the greatest coach in, in team sports history. You know, there's there's very few that can challenge him on that. I think Belichick probably yeah. could raise his hand and go, it's a me. And I think yeah. he'd probably throw Joe Terry in there as well. Yeah, he, and I was he going would be back in there too. Casey Stang, Casey Stengel, and all those you know, uh, turn of the century, you know, all the, the you know, and um, oh, the the Celtics coach when they won ten in a row was it Red oh, Auerbach? Red Auerbach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, just the overall takeaway from this uh, this series, it was just, it's a monster. It's you know, just a shade under ten hours. It just. Had... I wish it was ten more. Oh my god! Yeah, the, the ways you could have branched off and and done another ten. It just the mind reels at that sort of thing. Um, holy crap! What was uh, if if you had to give an overall grade to this thing, you know, it, this beast in its entirety, what would you give it? An F minus minus. Because <laughs> the bulls are evil. No, it's it's an A plus. I looked forward like I waited. I didn't watch the first two episodes right away. Uh, I basically watched episodes one and two the day before three and four got released. And I was really happy I did that because after episode two, I was like, I want the next episode. So previously, I was kind of waiting a few days because it, it was this weird feeling if I watch one on a Wednesday, and then come back on Sunday and watch the next two. It doesn't feel like as long of a wait. So and so tonight, this so these were the last two, so I was going to probably watch these tonight anyway. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I was like, oh, the second they were dropping, I was like, all right, what's my watching schedule as far as watching these and spreading these out so this way I can enjoy them pretty quickly but still not burst through them like immediately and still not have to wait in between them like i'm i'm now sad that it's over because next sunday it's gonna be no alert that says episode 11 and 12 of the last dance it's over already i can't believe this month has gone by it's five weeks with two episodes a week and it's gone already so that's an a plus yeah 
um, blown away by the, the the scope of this, the enormity of this. I uh, I could have had an extra episode just of trash talking Isaiah Thomas. I could have had an episode uh, just on Rodman in the NWO. But uh, to be fair, there was a WWE Untold on that subject. If you want more on that, that uh, came out within the last couple of months is my understanding. Uh, You know, the stuff on Steve Kerr, I never knew that before and was just endlessly just fascinated by that entire development. Couldn't believe it. Uh, You you could have done more on Phil easily. Yeah, I I feel like Phil was... And I get it. Phil probably would want it this way anyway, but he was almost feature, he was featured considering it was not the story of Michael Jordan really, it was the story of the Chicago Bulls team. I feel like of all those characters, Phil was featured much less than he probably should have been. But again, you're juggling these massive personalities in Michael and then Scotty's story and then the Rodman's insanity. And then Phil's just kind of the guy that's holding everything together. So while I think there could have been a lot more stuff done from Phil's perspective, I don't know if it would be – it could also – Phil is still a pretty tight-lipped guy when it comes to kind of spilling his guts about things. He, he wrote the one book, read it a little bit. So I don't know how forthcoming Phil was in their interviews, so that could have also influenced it too. Like they looked at the Phil interviews and went, and eh, we're not getting much new ground here. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. But um yeah, it, it's one of those things where it just more and more and more they they could have just they they could have doubled the episode order and I still would have given this thing an A plus, I think. Just it was it was so cool to get in that time machine and be so immersed in into something i you know re- remembering that era as vividly as i did and you know the championship run the first title they win it when i'm 6 in 1991 they win the last one when i'm 13 and remembering all of all of that stuff in between and the going to play baseball and the NWO and, you know, uh, the attempt at the run without Michael, the running into the magic, Space Jam, just all these different pieces coming together in like this tapestry. I think that's the best thing I can compare it to. It's like, like going to a museum and seeing like a medieval tapestry of like this epic battle. Think of, think of, ones of like William the Orange being the conqueror of England and it just telling this huge story from top to bottom. That's what it felt like. But it starts with Michael like arriving in Chicago and it ends with him hitting that shot and everybody, you know, burning those things they they remember and they wrote about the team oh, at their God, very yeah. last meeting. Yeah. And Michael shit. writes the poem and everyone's like everyone's stunned that like Michael wrote a poem. Yeah. And even today, he tries to downplay it. So yeah, I wasn't a poet. It just was how I felt at the time. Yeah. But just huge, huge. And uh, I yeah, want to know what Dennis wrote. Yeah, right. It had like, to be something insane. 
NWO for life burns it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, dear Mike, I know you were laughing, but you could have been there too. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't tell you. I know you wanted to join me deep down inside. Oh, man. Scotty, I'm glad you didn't. You have a bad back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you no took joke. care of it yourself. <laughs> this ain't ballet. Signed, Dennis. Um, yeah. Carmen says incredible hi. Incredible stuff. <laughs> so is the woman that fell off the well, ceiling, I love the right? shot. I lo- yeah. I love the shot of her. She's like, oh, you want me to kiss the trophy? It's like, of course they did. Of course they did, Carmen. Carmen Electra's in the hotel with Dennis Rodman kissing the NBA champion, Larry O'Brien trophy. <laughs> if that doesn't sum up 1998, that's nothing does. Fucking wild. Like, what even? But, yeah, yeah it was it's phenomenal. Just... Like, I recommend it. And you don't have to be a big... I think just the human stories that are being told and the drama that unfolds. Even if you don't love, you're not a big basketball fan, and you're like, what's this Jordan shit all about? I think you'll watch that and be like, wow, I understand this moment in time and how insane all this stuff was. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a case study. It's the 90s all wrapped up in one, you know, one time. It's a time capsule is what it is. And you can see the seeds for so many things that would go forward with how the NBA works and how sports in general work, you know, the the ideas of like the exposés or the gotcha journalism that starts with the Jordan rules and, you know, goes through the like wild unfounded speculation about the murder of James Jordan and just all these things that in the age before social media and that's something else they say is that Michael's celebrity was so impressive because it was before social media. And he was the first one to really kind of become the, you know, the superstar pitchman and made so so much money outside of the NBA. Like you said in, in part one, he really didn't start making the big money until in basketball until his last couple of years in the league with those string of one-year deals where he was making 25, 26, 27, 29 million dollars. But he had already made so much from Nike at that point because of the nature of the deal he had it was just like throw it on the pile yeah I I, Michael was so fiercely driven by basketball I don't know if he'd be if if Michael Jordan was in his prime today I don't know if he'd be much of a social media presence he'd have a team that would tweet out stuff for him like you know the Jordan uh, account tweeted something like we're we're just getting started or our story's not over like you'd see stuff like that i don't think mike would be doing a lot of post-game tweeting i think you know i don't think there'd be much mike on social media like a lot of the other guys i just feel like he'd be like no i'm not wasting my time with that yeah i i mean i think i feel like it's very telling that to this day he doesn't have a twitter account and and I think, honestly, if you look at Kobe, Kobe during his when playing days didn't spend any time tweeting or doing Instagram. That didn't happen until he was close to retirement. Yeah, pretty much. And I think Kobe is like the the best one to one study for that. 
Mamba mentality is really the Air Jordan mentality. Yeah, he's probably the closest anybody will come to it. And and as we and, as we said in part one, the embodiment of the Be Like Mike movement. Yeah. And with all due respect to the great Kobe Bryant, he wasn't close. No, this like, this really underlined, you know, several times over that uh, there's Michael Jordan and there's everybody else. Yep. When they called, uh, uh, it was Michael Wilbon during the series that said the comparison list is Babe Ruth and Muhammad Ali, and that's it. He's yeah. on a different level of greatness. Yeah, I, I can't argue that. Can't argue that even a little bit. And uh, I, we will never see another player closely resembling him in our lifetimes. I'm, I'm pretty confident in stating that. Yeah, phenoms like that just don't come along often, right? And you look at all sports. There's not another Gretzky in hockey. Sidney Crosby is a great player. He's not the great Gretzky, though. You know, uh, in baseball, there's been a ton of stars, but you, there's like Babe Ruth hasn't played a game since what 1933, I think, or 35. Yeah, we're we're, com- we're, we're coming up on 90 years there. And, and people still like, oh yeah, Babe Ruth, best baseball player. Like, it's just another athlete of that level has not come all. You know, no one hits more home runs by himself than every other team in the league. It doesn't happen. So while there have been baseball stars, there hasn't been that star. You know, football, Tom Brady, Joe Montana, but. They don't go into the public consciousness like Michael Jordan or Babe Ruth or Muhammad Ali. Like Mike Tyson maybe approaches, but I think because of how it ended for Mike and the missteps he made and the bad behavior, it diminished him. I think if Mike would have stayed on the right track and, you know, if Customato is able to live five more years and Mike doesn't get into the Don King world. I think there's a different discussion to be had about Mike Tyson, which is a completely different thing. But Mike Tyson maybe comes the closest in that completely engaging the public consciousness where everyone on – it seems like everyone on the planet, you could just say the name Mike Tyson. And they'd be like, oh, I know who that is. right? Even in professional wrestling, there's Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin and Ric Flair – you know, and Ric Flair is actually more famous post his career because of his his uh, influence in, in rap and hip hop culture, which is insane. That like that just kind of happened out of nowhere. But as far as like in the day, in the moment where the whole world knew who these guys were, wrestling it's Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin. There's no one else has come along, but The Rock. But he was at the same time as Austin. So it, the, these cultural phenoms just don't happen and. Again, as, as great as LeBron James is, and he is one of the top three, top five. Hey, if you told me top two, I wouldn't call you crazy. Basketball players of all time. He just does it. He's not in the public consciousness in the same way Michael Jordan was. It was a thing. It was like 
it must have been like what it was like when the Beatles or Elvis were around. It just yeah, he, he all the attention went to him. Uh, David Stern in in his interview on the documentary when Michael Jordan won his first for, for first title, the NBA was in sixty countries. When he won the last one, they're in over three hundred countries. Yeah, a lot of that growth was on the phenom that is Michael Jordan. Like, there's it's just, it's it's hard to watching the documentary. I think you get a great feeling of what he was. But if you if for people that weren't alive or were too young during that time frame, it's just hard to capture how bonkers it was around Michael Jordan. Like, even Space Jam 2 is coming. It's LeBron James and Space Jam. It's like, well, you gotta do the fucking same thing Michael Jordan did. Like, that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> Michael Jordan did that. Stop it. You're great. Stop doing the same thing he did. Shaq's movie's terrible. Don't compare to Space Jam. Space Jam's bad, but at least it was a hit. Space Jam had Bugs Bunny and immediately was better by proxy. <laughs> Have you listened to the How Did This Get Made episode about Space Jam? No, but I'm, I'm going to. I'm also going to recommend that to everyone who is listening to this. That is the recommendation yes. slash cheap plug for the week. I just went back and watched Space Jam probably for the first time in over 10 years in the run-up and the prep for this. Doesn't hold up. It is much. awful. Also, <laughs> doesn't, hold, doesn't help that they uh, play R. Kelly, uh, you know, convicted pedophile r kelly you know 57 times during that movie um with the i believe i can fly so that doesn't hold up in hindsight either but you know yeah, yeah. and again patrick ewing was in that movie so i was like i'm watching it and i like bugs bunny so i'm not gonna let michael jordan ruin this for me and back then i was like that was fun Again, there's certain things that you should not go back and watch when you're an adult because you're like, man, I had terrible taste. I like some bad shit. <laughs> I like some really terrible stuff. Oh, I learned a lesson. I, I learned a lesson. I'm not even going to try to deny it. But, uh, you know, the uh, the work had to be done and the the, uh, the research had to be put in so that I could uh, – I could bring this monster project in for a landing, and I, I thank you sincerely for for jumping on board and doing this along with me. Uh, this was e exactly the detour from pro wrestling that I needed. Good, thank you. Uh, when you asked me, I was like, hell yeah! I ha like I've talked a little bit about this here and there. You know, like I veer off topic on PW Insider a lot, so I've talked some about this, but. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get a chance to kind of deep dive and not have to bring it back to a topic without people screaming at me. Like, I'm I'm paying to listen to wrestling, you jerk. Like, okay, I know, but come on, guys. I can't talk about wrestling nonstop, especially right now. So give me a break. Yeah. So I, I really was happy. I was like, yeah, I'll totally do that. That's And uh, really enjoyed myself. So thank you for having, inviting me into your podcast home. And I hope uh, everyone enjoys listening to – 57 hours of us talking about The Last Dance. <laughs> you know, you, you exaggerate, but I think by the time this is all, all told, the first episode was 2 hours 20, and this one's going to be about the same as well. But um, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you haven't been sold on it by now, we cannot recommend enough. Seek it out. 
It will be on the ESPN app. That's how I watched it. Um, I know that there's some bonus content and some half-hour deep dives into some of the uh, pivotal characters from that Bulls, uh, you know, second three-peat on the ESPN Plus app. Uh, Enjoy it while you can. That's just a a treasure trove of stuff floating around right now. Also, if you have ESPN Plus, they have remastered um, tapes of the classic games that are referenced throughout the series. So I know what I'll be doing. Yeah, I I was about to say, I'm I'm taking your lead. I know what I'll be doing uh, as I lift weights for the rest of the week. That's exactly what I've been doing. I fire up one of those Bulls games during my at-home workouts. And it carries me through the workout. Every once in a while, I gotta catch myself because, like, I'll stop to watch. Like, because Jordan will get on a hot stretch. You can hear the announcers. Like, some of it's really crappy because it'll be like the Cleveland Cavaliers radio announcers over the video, and I'm like, oh, I can't deal with this. <laughs> they suck. <laughs> but, but like, when it's like the the big time games, the big time announcers, like, you could hear the announcers' excitement build. And every once in a while, I'll like. I'll be like, oh, my rest was too long between sets because I got caught up in watching Michael Jordan do Michael Jordan things. Got to just go back to working out. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's been my uh, television program of choice when uh, I've been doing my at-home workouts, to, watching a bunch of Jordan stuff. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Hope you guys enjoyed taking this ride with us. Uh, promise we'll be back to wrestling soon, soon enough. Double or Nothing is coming up. Um, at this weekend as you're hearing this we're rolling into it and uh we'll be back at some point uh after this i I don't have a specific date for you because this is two episodes in a week y'all i'm just dumping a shitload of content out there i'll come back i'll do some double or nothing but enjoy this while you got it i certainly am so uh good night pineapple pete wherever you are yeah, he Pineapple Pete sleeps with the fishes after that elbow. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> um, hit him with your socials. Tell him where to find you. At Mike Epsonhart on Twitter. Don't even look for my Instagram. The latest picture I looked is from like four years ago. I don't use it. Uh, uh, you could search for my name on Facebook if you really want to and find me, but you might be really upset with some of the things I post. It's mostly just jokes and workout stuff right now. I stopped being serious on there because I have too many fights. But... um. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, PWInsiderElite.com. Uh, tons of great content on there from the whole staff, and I'm on there every Saturday for FMB. Uh, be with my controversial, sometimes uh, annoying, obnoxious, uh, uh, hate-inducing opinions about professional wrestling. So uh, if you either want to laugh at uh, the absurdity of some of the things I say, or you just want to heal to make you really mad you can listen to that on Saturday morning so uh, that's that yeah it's all my stuff yeah and uh, as always you can find me at Jack Heartless on Twitter um, at Captain Jack Heartless on Instagram easy for me to say Uh, keep an eye on facesandheels.com for updates on the next volume of that check out all the amazing stuff we're doing at Lapel yeah as the think tank has inexplicably kept rolling even in the midst of a pandemic uh hopefully you guys are all doing your part to flatten the curve so we can get back to uh live wrestling and i can get back to uh working behind the scenes and slinging you merch in a town near you sooner rather than later but until then for mike 
This is Captain Jack Heartless saying thank you very much. And always remember, what time is it? Game time. Oof! It's important to practice good hygiene At least if you wanna run with my team I'm about to get into some that I've seen This fool's breath on me so that'll melt your ice cream They say don't say nothing if you can't say nice things Sitting too close to him on board like my ice sting I tried to be subtle, hand him a stick of gum I was a victim of breath on him Running his yap about what set he from Gotta get some gum, gotta get him some He turned it down, his teeth was brown It's cruciating for and it was a new sensation I had to ask the dope to pass the soap Cause his coat had to stitch the crustaceans Or bathrooms in the bus station He had a can of O.E. and some raisins Amazing, had to Tobio, he didn't know Used to the fragrance, just as the days went without bathing He felt manly and not like a maiden He had one dread and fungus Said he worked on people's toilets with plungers Girls, not the guy, you were with the tongue, yeah So guys, take your cue from this little number You gotta wash your... If you must, you gotta wash your hair. If you must, you gotta wash your teeth. If you must, or else you'll be funky.